0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the law firm of Davis Malm. Whether you're a buyer, seller, investor, or lender, their business attorneys understand that each deal has unique needs and requirements. Building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com.
1: Ahead on Boston Public Radio, President Trump's WMD wall of mass distraction starting to crumble with his Russia problems returning to the spotlight. And as the government shutdown grinds on, can we really believe there's a national emergency if Trump is so hesitant to declare one? We take on these and other headlines on today's Politics Roundup. From there, we talk to Charlie Senate about how anti-immigration sentiment is creating transatlantic paralysis. In the U.S., we have our border wall breakdown, and in the U.K., they have a battle over Brexit.
2: At noon, we open the lines and ask you about the FBI investigating President Trump and speculation that the president could be a Russian asset. For this work the Democrats' 2020 advantage, or do they run the risk of alienating Trump's base by intensifying the so-called witch hunt? Then TV Bob Thompson is here to talk about The Sopranos 20 years later and how the show transformed television. That's next on Boston Public Radio. <laughs> I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello, Jim.
1: Hello, Marjorie. So we are 24 days into a government shutdown. It's the all-time record, as you probably know. And for Trump, that has meant three weeks of news coverage that is focused on little else. But it turns out the fight over the border wall isn't the best firewall when it comes to keeping the president's Russia problems out of the spotlight. On Thursday, Michael Cohen said he's agreed to testify before Congress in early February. And on Friday, as you know, the New York Times broke a story about an FBI inquiry into whether Trump had secretly worked on behalf of Russia. Joining us to talk about these and other political headlines are Jennifer Brasseris and Steve Kerrigan. Jennifer is a political columnist, senior fellow with the Independent Women's Forum, and a former commissioner of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Hello, Jennifer. Good morning. And Steve is a president and co founder of the Massachusetts Military Heroes Fund, former CEO of the Democratic National Convention. Steve, nice to see you. Nice to see you both.
2: So let's start with something that I think is pretty surprising. I mean, sometimes I feel like we're like frogs in the in the water. You know, you get put in the water, and then the water gets heated up and heated up and heated up, and heated up before you know you're, like, boiled to death. <laughs> I, I feel kind of like... I think the like president I the frog, yeah, I was say you. <laughs> yeah. Well, could be. But I feel like sometimes we, Americans are, because there's been so many weird things that the Trump administration has done. But i got got to say, I stood up and paid attention over the weekend when the New York Times reported that essentially the FBI was investigating the sitting president of the United States for treason, uh, uh, for being a Russian agent, or best case scenario, maybe not knowing he was a Russian agent. What would you make of this?
3: I I think the FBI is out of control when I read that. Um, I think... I I just I'm dumbfounded. I mean, the only reason they they put forward for doing so was the firing of James Comey, which we all knew about the notion that he's a Russian agent or, quote unquote, working for the Russians because of this personnel decision is absurd. I mean, there's there was more reason to doubt whether or not President Obama had the best interest of the country in mind when he told you know, the Russian president, that he would have more flexibility after the election than there was to investigate Donald Trump. I just I think it's absurd. There's so many things that one could investigate Donald Trump for. I think that is a politicization of the of of electoral politics and it's well, just beyond the pale. Let's,
2: let's play, before you respond, let's play sure. this interview he had with uh, Fox News' Janine Pierre on Saturday. He, this morning he said he was not working with the Russians, but he didn't say this when he was talking to her about whether or not he was a Russian agent on Saturday night. Here it is.
4: Have you ever worked for Russia, Mr. President? <laughs> I think it's the most insulting thing I've ever been
5: asked. I think it's the most insulting article I've ever had written. Uh, And if you read the article, you'd see that they found absolutely nothing. But the the headline of that article, it's called The Failing New York Times for a Reason. They've gotten me wrong for three years. They've actually gotten me wrong for many years before that.
2: Uh, What do you make of this, Steve Kerrigan? I I had a a different reaction um, than Jennifer. (laughs) I will agree with one
6: part of Jennifer's comments, that it is absurd. The whole thing is absurd. The fact that Donald Trump is our president is absurd, but we are where we are. It is not based solely on his Comey comments. Um, although, first, um, direct, saying it directly to Lester Holt that the reason why I fired him was the Russia investigation uh, was a problem and is concerning. But it's also a major Russian agent. I let you hold on. His family and campaign uh, staff met with. Uh, representatives of the Russian government and Russian attorneys in the summer, he asked, stood on a stage uh, at a time that we later realized was the time when they were hacking the DNC and said maybe they could hack and find those thirty three thousand emails. The, the FBI followed the trail of potential evidence, and they came at least publicly right now to the conclusion that there's nothing. But what the president exactly. said, what the president said on Gene on Fox News rather. Was, uh, was not entirely true. The article doesn't conclude that there's nothing. It just concludes that there's nothing in the public right now. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, the Mueller investigation is going to continue for a long time, and the FBI is a critical part of this. I just think it is astounding that, like Marjorie, I, all, all weekend long I kept drilling into this story because I found it astounding that over and over and over again people were saying on TV the president of the United States was being investigated by the FBI for treasonous activities. And honestly, not that many people blinked an eye.
2: Well, Jennifer, I, not I that think... not many people believe it. <laughs> well, I think a lot well, of I people... Do. <laughs> a lot of people think that the president's problems with Russia have to do with money and have to do with the fact that he's been bolstered up uh, by Russia. Max Boot, who's a Republican, as you know, but is not Barely. a fan of the president, uh, talked about in this piece he wrote for The Washington Post, 18 Reasons Trump Could Be a Russian Asset. He talked about the fact uh, that from 2003 to 2017, Russians made these all-cash purch- purchases a red flag, for money laundering of properties total. A lot of money, $109 million. Deutsche Bank uh, loaned him, uh, millions of dollars out as Trump during the same time was laundering uh, billions in Russian money. His kids talked about how the Russians bailed them out over again. They have to go to American banks. That and the fact of his me- meeting with Kislyak and saying how great it was. You get rid of uh, uh, this pressure from Comey. Uh, that when he goes on television and says that he's, that he's uh, got rid of Comey because of Russia. All these things uh, kind of go together. Um, but I
3: think— I think the problem politically for critics of the president is instead of discussing the specific instances that Max Boot brings up and investigating those specific instances, by saying that he's a Russian agent or somehow working for the Russian government against the interest of his country, so politicizes it that his supporters dig in and it's not helping the cause of those who wish to see the president Um, you know, brought to task for things he may have done that that are unethical. Well, you know, I've stayed
1: out of this so far, but it it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter at this day, because we will wait for what Mueller has to say, whether Steve's analysis or Jennifer's is right. I think what I am speechless about is the FBI, even if you believe it became a renegade agency, the FBI chose to investigate Whether the president of the United States of America was working, wittingly or unwittingly, for the Russian government. And then he's got to answer a question, not got to, does – he's addressed by the sycophantic uh, Fox News uh, interviewer about whether or not you're a Russian agent. I mean – That's a pretty dramatic moment, even if it turns out the FBI and Mueller conclude the answer is no. The fact that they thought a threshold was crossed, Jennifer, where an investigation was appropriate—
6: is the FBI also
3: investigated Martin Luther King for alleged ties to communists. I mean, there are lots of times when the FBI opens investigations into people in this country. Civil libertarians will tell you that, that it's been either inappropriate or unfounded. The fact of an investigation just means that there doesn't—and I'm not casting dispersions on the entire agency. It just means there are certain people— in the agency who thinks something's worth looking into. But, you know, that but doesn't Except for you just said we
6: politicized the whole thing, except for you, well, your exact words were it just to say that someone in the agency thought that it was something uh, worth looking into. I would gather based on all the evidence... That was also under evidence, J. or Hoover into. who right. had
2: a lot of ethical Correct. problems in a lot of areas. I'm not sure anybody's accused uh, James Comey or his, his, his successor as is, is, uh, having huge ethical... There were a lot pro- but, of by people the way, in the pres-
3: FBI who were severely biased against the president and look, I didn't because, vote for the president, okay. I'm but-
1: Let me just finish my thought for a second. If if this was in isolation, putting aside Max Boot for a moment, if this were in isolation, I would probably agree with you. But we could spend the next three hours talking about circumstantial evidence that suggests that Donald Trump's behavior vis-a-vis well, Vladimir Helsinki, Putin and the Russians Syria, you know, is rather
2: uh, uh, in the platform. One could argue
1: that he's
3: taken a stronger foreign policy stance against Russia than the Obama well, administration does, that, 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 yeah. ceded, that ceded Crimea that ceded the Ukraine he's essentially, just... that allowed a, a power vacuum in the Middle East and allowed Putin to come into Syria and make a mess of that. One could argue that Barack Obama colluded with Vladimir Putin No
6: one could argue that other well, than maybe Donald Trump and you, and that I would caution you against, just, against doing that because I, I like that, you a lot. I
3: disagree with that. Pick up the National <laughs> uh, Review, pick up any intellectual fine, we'll look, conservative uh, publication, and you will find there are serious people in this country to, who I, think that Obama. I totally understand s- that, but this is not the this, this is
6: this is the go-to for every Donald Trump supporter is the whataboutisms rather than discussing well, Donald, I'm not a Trump, Donald Trump. I, well, <laughs> you're certainly carrying some water this morning, anyway. I just think uh, the New York <laughs> Times Let him finish, is Jennifer, and then you can well, respond. I'm so, sorry, go Rather than addressing the questions that have been raised about Donald Trump. Clear connections to Russia, whether you agree with the policy or not, clear uh, uh, confusion, if not collusion with uh, with Putin he, I mean even this another story this weekend in The Washington Post, where he took the notes from the translator of the Helsinki meeting. We have no one in Congress or no one in his administration knows anything about a conversation several conversations Two that hours. he has had with the leader of Russia Nobody That is has high the-
3: right to. You- <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but
6: to but form I, I a guess, functioning government to represent the people of the United States, it would be nice to know what is happening be between nice us and our things. chief adversary. And so, I'm just saying that I think is something that's worth looking into and going back to. Well, what about happened? What happened to Martin Luther King or what happened to Barack Obama? I think is frankly a waste of our time. Look,
3: I, all I know is it must drive Mitt Romney absolutely crazy. I mean, he was mocked, absolutely mocked by the President of the United States, Barack Obama, and by the Democratic Party for saying that Putin and Russia were the biggest threat to this country. They and, laughed. They said the 1980s right. called. They want their foreign policy back. Yeah. And you know what? Mitt Romney was right. Great. And, and we're still not talking right. about
6: Mitt Romney. We're talking about Donald Trump being well, investigated by the FBI for, frankly, I think, um, circumstances and uh, situations that, frankly, warrant it.
3: There may we're, be situations that warrant concern. He is not an agent of the Russian well, government. We'll let the FBI decide.
1: Well, you don't decide. know, but what, you don't, the, you don't I, know. I find that. That don't highly know. unlikely. Uh, we're talking to Jennifer Becerra's unwitting and agent Kerrigan. would be
2: more what, what I would, <laughs> what He's
1: I definitely would unwitting.
2: find likely because it's very odd the way he's acted.
1: So we're in day uh, 24 of the shutdown. Everybody knows it's the longest shutdown uh, in American history. Uh, What's the end game here, Steve uh, Kerrigan? Lindsey Graham suggested that essentially everybody go back to work for three weeks, and if at the end of three weeks it was was not a negotiated deal, then you can declare a national emergency and go find the money, President Trump, to build the wall yourself. The president, I think somewhat respectfully this morning, rejected that uh, suggestion. Uh, we all know there were no paychecks on Friday. What is the end game here?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Lindsey Graham threw the president uh, uh, a lifeboat, and I don't, you know, he, he I thought so the too. The same way he, the same way he does it all the time. He doesn't see it as that, and because it wasn't his idea, and so he rejects it. I mean, the majority of Americans believe that President Trump and Republicans in Congress are are responsible for the shutdown but to me this isn't about I went I worked through the last longest uh, government shutdown in the 90s and to me this isn't about who's responsible it's about leadership and what you saw last week was the president give his first oval office address and said absolutely nothing new and followed up with absolutely nothing new he went to the border with, and to do an act that he actually said to reporters off the record was nothing more than a photo op and would change nothing and at the same time – oh, by the way, at taxpayer expense, he went to the border. Uh, and at the same time, the Democrats in the House of Representatives were passing bills and sending them to the Senate to do exactly what Lindsay suggested, which was uh, to reopen the government and decide the homeland security and border security stuff later. And instead of taking those bills up and passing them in the Senate, Mitch McConnell objected to their even consideration because they want to make sure that the president gets his wall funding. And I frankly think those demonstrating leadership are those Democrats in the House and those in the Senate. And frankly, by the way, also – Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who stood on the center floor and said we need to reopen the government. And now, I hate to say this, but now Lindsey Graham. Is, you know, is, uh, it, Jennifer, leadership. the
1: thing I don't understand, we discussed that with this discussion about the emergency and, and it was the best mm-hmm. way out uh, for the president. Uh, we discussed, I think, first with Chuck Todd last week from Meet the Press. I don't understand at all why he's rejected this because trying to put myself in the place of Donald Trump, it's sort of the perfect opportunity for him to claim victory on 42 accounts. One, I have put the federal workers, 800,000 of them, back to work. The Democrats don't care about them. I did, and I can't see them not earn money anymore. It doesn't Put the facts aside for a second. Two, you will get the wall that you want, even though people don't want it. You will get the wall you want by me taking unilateral action because the Congress is so irresponsible. So the only possible argument I can think of which would cause him not to do that, either a la Lindsey Graham or today, is that conservative Republicans – don't like the whole concept of presidents grabbing that much power and taking unilateral action, and it may upset them. Is that the reason for the hesitancy?
3: I think that may be it. I think that the constitutional and the precedent that it would conservatives say, around yeah. him do not like that precedent. They didn't like it when Obama took unilateral action on certain right. issues, and they want to be consistent. Um, that may be what he ends up doing, but frankly, I you know I don't think he cares either way as long as he gets his way, right? That's all he cares about. And this is red meat for his base. Um, They love him. They support him. They are, it's firing them up. And he sees it as win-win politically. What do you
1: think is the end game here? I mean, this is going to end at some point, one must assume. What, how does it end?
3: I I don't know. I mean, I, I do think, look at, you know, Politics is the art of compromise, and Democrats don't want a wall. I understand that. But they do want, and many Republicans want, DACA. And it seems to me an easy deal, the wall for DACA, and, you know... Even How Alexander Hamilton but the, but the, had to agree right. to move the capital but, to the south but, to get his national bank. I but, mean, this is what happens in politics.
2: But you know what what I wonder though is that the president w- w- has been close to other deals before and then he's gotten this blowback. Uh if, if the story well, it's Miller and sessions who stopped at the first Ann time. And Coulter and Rush Limbaugh oh, don't sorry, want the DACA yeah. yeah, the DACA deal. So isn't he isn't that the problem because that does seem like it would be a a Maybe, reasonable solution. Maybe, but I you
3: know, I think if I were czar of the universe, that would be the deal. The yeah. wall for DACA.
1: Well, was the I deal mean, yeah. once. The <laughs> At one point, right, but yeah. that would, be,
3: but see, that's right. that would right. be the end game. The I will ask you yeah. as a
1: Democrat. You're the fifth straight Democrat I've had on the show where I will ask gay, the exact actually, same question. Uh, how do you, <laughs> how do you, uh, how, do the Dem- you how do Pelosi and Schumer, I did, how do Pelosi and Scho- uh, Schumer, uh, and I'm amazed that, that Trump has not put them in this box, but maybe because he doesn't want to get tied to the DACA deal. Since they are willing to give him five times as much money for the wall once just exactly a year ago in return for the deal on Dreamers, how can they not propose the exact same deal if they're so concerned about 800,000 workers out of uh, a job and a million Dreamers who are – at? Risk? Why not just propose? And by the way, they'd only end up spending one fifth as much money on the wall. It seems to be
6: yeah, and that may be where we where we end up because if if you're waiting to use that final card, you're waiting until the until the very end. And I don't, I sadly don't think we're there. Uh, If they agreed on a number, like the Democrats said, I'd already passed um, some border security funding. I think one point six or. $2 2 million but they agreed to $2 billion. 25 billion a year ago and then he didn't take it. I understand that, but they <laughs> proposed it. Right, but my and point they is they proposed it.
1: How can they say 5 billion is too much when 25 billion in return for protection for dreamers was acceptable?
6: Because this is because the 5 billion dollar, the 25 billion dollars was part of not a continuing resolution to restart the government. This was a larger discussion, and that's by the way what border security deserves because Democrats do support border security. It just shouldn't be part of a larger discussion. And it I'll say this, be,
3: but it can be piecemeal too.
6: It can which is what they were trying to do. And they tried to do it last year in another continuing resolution where they gave him a couple of billions, of do- billion dollars, where they have now only spent 90, 90- sorry, 6% of the billions of dollars he got last year for border security. So if he's that, you know, sure this is an emergency, or that critical to get more funding for border security, maybe spend the billions he got last year. I, I really think this has to be part of, and I think the Democrats are saying this, has to be part of a larger discussion on border security and immigration. Uh, and frankly, this should be part of but a larger Nancy discussion.
3: Pelosi is saying walls are immoral. They're they, not saying that well, the they wall are, is one piece of, of border security. They're saying the wall should be no piece of border security. No, they're not
6: saying that because there are parts of border well, security that have Nancy walls. Pelosi they're says. just saying a wall, you know, uh, water to water it makes absolutely no sense. And so what does it mean? To say
1: we're not near the end. Does that mean these these eight hundred thousand people yeah. continue well, to be about, unpaid
6: for another week or two weeks. So do you the see? Theory? I mean, I don't see. I don't see any end in sight right well, now, unless is, they do what Lindsey Graham suggested. Th- th-
2: th- there is also the theory that uh, if if p- people continue to blame it, may change uh, Trump and Republicans more than Democrats. That some uh, Republicans will join Gardner for Cory Gardner and Susan Collins and Lisa mm-hmm. Murkowski and say. We're gonna we, let's reopen the government, and then we'll decide the homeland security thing. I, I guess some of them are afraid of a challenge. Uh, I think from it's the... going
3: to depend on how many government workers they have in their district. Yeah, mm-hmm.
6: and and that's I the mean, thing is Mitch McConnell. That's yeah.
3: the real reality of it. That's it's not about principles so much as it's about how mad their voters.
6: I mean, Mitch McConnell has been very quiet, I've almost. Mute about the entire. So What do you
1: read into that?
6: I read into this that he is worried about what Marjorie suggested. That there are a bunch of folks there that are watching this, analyzing it based on what Jennifer suggested and other things. And that if this goes too far, he may just let his members off the hook and let them. You know, even pass if some Nancy the thinks house,
1: a wall is immoral, it is immoral to not pay these people. When you cover totally. the interviews with these people and the small businesses and a lot of the communities that are federal employee intensive. What Mm -hmm. it is just it is otherworldly. No, I have a lot of friends who are not uh, getting uh, paid. It's just it's it's amazing. You know, speaking of the president, and uh, of which we have been, which is all we do (laughs) actually. Now that I think about it, this tweet uh, here's a tweet which I'm sure you've seen. We all uh, talked about the Elizabeth Warren uh, 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 "Let me get me a beer" uh, thing, which most of us thought was ill advised. It's an Instagram thing she Mm -hmm. did today, uh, right after she did her announcement out there in uh, Cambridge. If Elizabeth Warren, this is a tweet from the president, often referred to me uh, by me as Pocahontas, did this commercial from Bighorn or Wounded Knee instead of her kitchen with her husband <laughs> dressed in full Indian garb, it would have been a smash. You know, beyond how disgusting it is, I'm assuming, and I'll give the president the benefit of the doubt, he has absolutely no idea what happened at Bighorn right. and no idea what happened at Wounded Knee, who he probably would have picked uh, you're laughing because you agree that he knows nothing. He has no idea what he's talking. Yes, I hope he and has no because
3: idea. it's it's just funny that the president of the United States would even say that, and his base is laughing. That's what they like. I mean, the whole thing is is absurd. She was uh,
1: you. I've often said you said she were the best teachers you had, even though you don't she agree with their indeed. politics. When you were at Harvard Law School, I mean, is this not? Crit- and disgusting. I mean, even if his bass is laughing and loving it, and God, we love these Pocahontas jokes, nothing like a good joke about Native Americans, by the way, to make the bass laugh.
3: Well, it's a joke about this is This is
1: almost the behavior of a mentally ill human being. It is unbelievable. It's the
3: behavior to me. of a fourth grade boy. It's it's it the is. it's the it behavior is. of my son. I hate to say it. I mean the stupid <laughs> jokes he makes with his friends and he could be not president. about Native
6: yeah, I was Americans. Say, <laughs> can we replace the president with your son? <laughs> but,
3: but don't you think I hate to say this, this is going to sound incredibly elitist. So Go here goes. Don't you think the American public often has the sense of humor of a fourth grade boy and has the right? I mean so this is this is the quote-unquote political magic of Donald Trump, is that he's he's captured this.
2: But I think he's captured think... it with <laughs> a smaller and smaller number of people. I, I don't think. know. I mean, they're yeah. not your
3: audience. They're not listening no. to us but right now. Well, is, are, is, our... they, they, if you look yeah. at our email, they we are. And I assume of we'll Trump have
6: Trump emails actually, in a few yeah. minutes. We annoy saying... them terribly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's, you're right. Maybe maybe. That language matches up with with, uh, some of what his base believes. But shouldn't we aspire for greater things from the leader of the free world and the president of the United States? And I think we all agree we should. Uh, We shouldn't uh, expect or... Um, accept language of a four-year-old boy to be used by the president of the United States. By the way, on Twitter, which has been determined to be official statements from the office of the president of the United States, I mean, look, that, you, that, that you tweet goes on no the same thing me. as the as the second inaugural of Lincoln. I mean, it, it's the same look, category no, of have presidential stuff. You no sta- argument yeah. with me on the yeah. dignity no, yeah.
3: issue and the character. It's just embarrassing. None whatsoever. And, you know, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush and all the other Republicans who who stood up and argued about that during the campaign – Feel the same way. But the fact is, the genie has been let out of the bottle. And the reason the genie's out of the bottle, I say this all the time, is because... For years and years, we heard Mitt Romney's a sexist, Paul Ryan wants to throw granny off the cliff, George Bush is a racist, and none of it was true. So people just stopped caring, and they just decided, you know what, we want a disruptor. We want somebody who's going to tell these people who think everybody's a racist and a sexist where to go, and this so, is what we got. So
6: are you suggesting Donald Trump's Twitter patterns are the fault of the Democrats and campaigns of the past?
3: I'm saying his election was a direct result of it, yes.
6: Can
1: I – one last thing before we take a break, and then we'll continue – uh, the discussion with you two, how, uh, I guess I know the answer to this, but uh, the leader of the Republicans in the House has now said he's going to go talk to Steve mm. King, who I think most people agree is a racist, following his most overtly racist comments about white nationalism white supremacy, mm-hmm. why are they offensive, to the New York Times. <laughs> and But the reason why they don't confront what I at least consider to be racist comments by the president are because they're scared to death of him and they're not scared of Steve King. Is that what the difference is? I mean, I commend McCarthy and the others for yeah. finally confronting King and saying, you can't be part whatever he's about to say. You can't be part of this party if you're going to behave like this. Correct. The reason they don't say the same things even in private to Donald Trump is because they're scared to death of his Twitter account.
3: Perhaps, but I also think Donald Trump has not been as explicit as Steve King. Well, well, I mean, he
6: said, I am a nationalist. I mean, but he said in than saying I understand, it but he was, it was a dog whistle to a lot of those Steve, Steve King Republicans.
3: Right. I mean, there are lots of things they should have confronted him about, not speaking out about Charlottesville. There are a lot of oh, things... Oh, no, he
6: spoke out. He just said there were nice people on both sides. Whatever. Not saying. The
3: point is, there are lots of things that he should have been confronted on, but none of them are explicitly racist. They... May be dog whistles in effect, but um, you know, I, I think there's, there's a debate about whether Donald Trump is himself a racist or whether he's just racial and plays to racial fears.
2: I think yeah. that's a legitimate debate. Okay, we're talking about political headlines, national political headlines from the White House, is not so much the State House today, with Jennifer Becerras and Steve Carrick, and we're going to stay talking to them again about national politics when we return on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Reagan. If you're just tuning in, we're talking politics with political columnist Jennifer Becerra and former head of the Democratic National Convention. That would be Steve Kerrigan.
2: So Elizabeth Warren visited Iowa, got uh, pretty large crowds. Uh, n- now she went to New Hampshire, done well up there. She's one of the first in the... Well, maybe she is the first. She's the first in the ring, I guess. She's not
6: technically in the ring. She's an exploratory She's an exploratory you know, candidate.
2: Okay, she's yeah. not. Uh, what do you make of her candidacy?
6: Well, I think she's, she's certainly got a voice that needs to be voiced in this debate, and we're going to have probably um, 30 people running or 20 people running. Uh, and It's it's not that long from the New Hampshire primary, so I'm, I'm glad to see that she got good crowds in Iowa and New Hampshire. People are clearly based on her reception in New Hampshire, at least. Are hungry for uh, the progressive voice that she's going to bring in this debate, but there's a, there are a lot more people that's uh, coming to come into the race, and I'll say this: we saw this about Bernie Sanders uh, four years ago, and we'll see this about her and maybe uh, Bernie Sanders. When you have a regional candidate like a Bay State or running in a New Hampshire primary, it significantly deludes the importance of New Hampshire in the primary process yeah. um, because a neighbor, you know, a neighbor state is, is more likely to win. Um, so I wouldn't read too much into her support there, but I think it's going to be interesting. Bernie Sanders definitely has to feel the heat of are you going to get in this or not because she's already picked up a lot of his activists and, and workers in Iowa – uh, to work on her campaign. So I think she's off to a good start and we'll see how it goes. Well, you know,
2: unlike Hillary Clinton, who I don't think ever had a clear message about why she should be president. Mm-hmm. This is Elizabeth Warren's uh, in- income inequality, 1 percent, 99 percent, mm-hmm. system is rigged, et cetera, is kind of her whole reason for being. So she's got the, a clear message a la Bernie Sanders, whether you like it or not. She does have a clear message,
3: um, which puts her at an advantage compared to Hillary Clinton. But I I think she um, I think if the Democrats want to lose, they will nominate Elizabeth Warren. I think Trump will beat her. Um, I, you know, I think if they're serious about beating Donald Trump in 2020, they should look to someone like Joe Biden who can win those states that Donald Trump Took out of the red, co- uh, took out of the blue column, and moved into the red, and they're going to have to go to the center.
2: But you know, one of the interesting phenomenons I've been reading about, and maybe it won't work in West Virginia, or maybe it will—I don't know—is that is that uh, a lot of Americans, particularly Democrats, are moving much more to the left. Uh, you know, supposedly Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is pushing people, and that. When you look at polls, people do want uh, better health care. People do think that the rich got away with murder in this latest tax deal. You know, people are upset about climate change, so that there's they 're adopting more of these liberal right, positions. So
3: candidates like Bernie Sanders, elizabeth Warren, you know ocasio cortez politicians like like them will inevitably push a more centrist candidate like Joe Biden to the left and that may be a good thing if you're a liberal and a democrat but the, but the point of a national election is you have to have an ability to win and and regardless of where you stand on the issues it, a lot of it comes down to personality and connectability with the voters, which Joe Biden can do, and Elizabeth Warren cannot.
6: So I would just say I agree with you, Marjorie, about uh, some of the issues on the left. But I think the issues on the left are becoming more Main moderate stream. and centrist in yeah. the mainstream. I mean, back in the day when Roe v. Wade was decided 50 years ago, we we didn't have a clear majority. We now have almost 80 percent of Americans support it. Gay marriage has, has across the board support. Climate control is recognized by most Americans. So all and, and universal, and health, universal care, health care, universal for all. You mentioned West Virginia. That is, was a huge issue for Joe Manchin who even though he voted for Brett Kavanaugh, that was a big issue because 800,000 people in his district could – or in his state could have lost their health care if the ACA went away. So I think that those, all may be true, those but issues are moving more to the mainstream because they're affecting to people's lives.
3: you're your most divisive well, firebrands, you <laughs> then you're going to lose a national election. That is the bottom line. And so if
2: you well, really – Trump is probably a divisive <laughs> well, firebrand. I was, was going to say, too. here's, right. h- here's how right? That is true. <laughs>
3: Trump was. But Trump is not – a hardcore conservative, he's divisive, but he did have that ability to connect with the voters. He's divisive in a different way. His his views, in many ways, are much left, much more centrist than Marco Rubio or or Jeb Bush or or George Bush on many issues.
1: You know, staying on the Democrats though for a second, there, uh, I have the only person who has almost as many things written about her as Donald Trump has written about him is the 29-year-old congresswoman from mm. the Bronx. And there was a story either in the Times or the, Washington, uh, or the Washington Post in the last 24 hours about how she is setting the agenda for the candidates, not only the, her party, but the candidates running for president. Do you support the Green New Deal? Do you support a 70% top marginal tax rate? We've talked about this a lot in the last week. Does that help the Democratic Party or does that hurt the Democratic Party? Because I assume... The Warrens and the Sanders will buy in big time. The uh, Some of the other candidates will compliment her, but will try to move away from yeah, the I mean, substance I, of I, what I, she's
6: proposing. I guess I take exception with the fact that she's pushing them on these issues. I think the issues are pushing them, and she's smart. She won a primary early, so she had the entire remainder of the general election to be the voice for these progressive issues while other candidates were out there fighting. Those issues were out there. People it wouldn't. Nobody
1: – no Democrat running for president would be asked if they think there should be a top uh, marginal no, rate of 70 percent had it not been for her on 60 Minutes eight days ago.
6: Agree with you. And I, I – And that's I,
1: a pretty electric issue, by it, the way, particularly in the states that Jennifer's talking it about. It is, and
6: my guess is most of them will probably say, no, it shouldn't be. But um, this – she's giving voice. To a lot of the issues because she has the ability to from the perch that she sits on. I'm excited to have her in Congress. I hope that she gets to work with her colleagues there and doesn't focus on the voice. She should. She's going to have a powerful voice in 2020, whether you like it or not. But I hope she actually does the work day to day, every day, for the people that elected her.
1: Uh, we're talking to Jennifer Becerra and Steve Kerrigan. Before you guys go, there's much anticipation being built for this February 7th appearance before Congress of. Uh Mr. Cohen, the president's former fixer, and people immediately after it was announced last week were likening it to John Dean's appearance before. I'd loved on CNN was a split screen the other night and John Dean's talking about whether or not uh, Cohen's appearance is like Dean's appearance before Congress many years, uh, obviously during uh, Watergate. Uh, Isn't it possible that he's not going to be able to say either because Mueller and the Southern District of New York prosecutors Don't want him to say things that this may not be nearly as electric as we are anticipating it to be, Jennifer Becerra's?
3: Well, he says he wants to clear his conscience, whatever that means.
1: But if a a prosecutor says, I don't want him to discuss... X, Y, and Z. Then Congress is not going to hear on uh, investigations that are continuing. Congress is not going right. to hear from I them mean, on X, as, Y, and as Z. As
3: I understand it, the um, testimony is not going to focus on things having to do with Russia and the Mueller probe. It's going to focus on the more uh, the personal corruption issues and things to do with the Trump organization. Things to do with Stormy Daniels and the payments and things that some people might not regard as interesting, but actually I think is where the real meat is. Well, how
1: about if not executive privilege or not prosecutorial discretion about you not – how about uh, attorney-client privilege being an issue for him if it's – if the president says these were confidential conversations, is Congress going to ask him the questions (laughs) while that's being debated? I mean, that's, a, I mean, it that's depends. a pretty tough one. I mean, I'm not a lawyer
6: you guys are, but if he's, if he's uh, aiding his client in a commission of a crime, does that – does that void all privilege? Yeah, but who, Depending who on what they're asking it, at, does that? Does it,
1: a Democrat yeah. on the committee decide right. to no, that's force why I think, him to answer a question when he says – or his lawyer, whoever right. Cohen shows up with? All I'm saying is is a good explosive. question. I, I haven't practiced
3: yeah. law in – Decades, so I'm probably the wrong person. Well, Norvon,
1: but... uh, so I'm the right person to ask, but not the right person to answer. <laughs> so, but it seems to me that it, with all the buildup, I guess
6: as we approach, yeah, I just, seventh, I, I tend to agree. More. I don't, I don't think we're going to learn very much.
2: It's got one hell of a New York accent, I'll say that. I think we're going to learn coming. a lot,
3: just not about the larger political issues. We're going to learn a lot about the Trump organization so. and the ethics of that I, uh, organization. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, probably I hope so. true.
6: And the members will probably learn is the, more in private. Is the
3: more, um, more credible.
2: Concerns. Okay, you guys, thank you you very much for coming in. Jennifer Becerra is a political columnist, senior fellow with the Independent Women's Forum, and a former commissioner of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Steve Kerrigan is president and co-founder of the Massachusetts Military Heroes Fund and former CEO of the Democratic National Committee. Jennifer and Steve, thank you so much. Uh, Coming up, the Labor Party is set to call a vote to topple Theresa May's government in Great Britain. Charlie Sennett joins us for that and other international headlines next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Mm -hmm.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Marjorie. And when President Trump meets with Vladimir Putin, do things get lost in translation deliberately? The Washington Post is reporting that Trump is going to extreme lengths to conceal his conversations with Putin, even going so far on one occasion as to confiscate his interpreter's notes so that his own aides and cabinet members wouldn't know what the two discussed. Join us on the headline for his take on this, tomorrow's Brexit vote. And what that fight in the UK over leaving the EU has in common with our fight over the border walls, Charlie Senate. Charlie's a news analyst here at GBH also heads up the Ground <laughs> Truth Project. Hey there, Charlie. Hey, Jamie, Marjorie.
4: Hey, Charlie, Reading great Trump to talk to hours.
2: you. Great to talk to you. Well, Charlie, let's start with this, what I think is rather unusual. Um, Trump's efforts over in Helsinki after talking with Vladimir Putin for about two hours, the only interpreter's presence in the room, he does something unusual with the interpreter. What, what happened?
7: Well, the interpreters consistently asked to sort of turn over their notes uh, Taking possession of the notes is what we found out from Greg Miller's piece in the Washington Post. Um, this is this is not normal to take and say, I'm going to take possession of the notes and instruct the linguist not to discuss what transpired with other administration officials. That's not normal. That is uh, extraordinary. And the big question right now, I don't see any clear answer coming out about this is whether or not Congress would subpoena uh, those notes and and. Subpoena the the actual interpreter to come forward. So we're we're headed for a reckoning around these extraordinary things that um, Trump has done, and they're real fair questions. This has never happened before. We've never had a president of the United States um, in a situation where Russia tried. We know what what do we know? We know Russia tried and intervened in our election, and we know they did so to help elect. Trump. We know there have been a series of, of indictments and guilty pleas around relationships between Russia and people in Trump's team, uh, both the campaign and inside of his administration. And at what point do you just say, we have to stop scratching our heads and start pounding the fist and say, we want to know what happened? Uh, for a long time, it's been perplexing. Now it's becoming quite worrisome. And I think, uh, I think it's really coming to a head now. I think this piece by Greg Miller uh, on the weekend was pretty extraordinary.
1: By the way, they were the Senate answer to your question, Charlie, about uh, what Congress is going to do. I think I heard that Lindsey Graham said over the weekend that, uh, he scoffed at the notion that his committee would subpoena the interpreter to testify. So I guess it's left to uh, the Democrats to say whether or not they will call that person and whether, uh, he or she, is it a man or woman, I don't know who the interpreter was, I don't know. whether he or she will show before that uh, House committee. So,
7: uh, Yeah, and I, I guess the, in the House, they, the House can subpoena, though, right? They, I would House, assume so, yeah. Committee yeah. So, to be determined.
2: Uh, so, let's talk about um, uh, Pompeo, the Secretary of State's visit to um, Syria, um, doing a little work about the announcement from the president to pull out of pull troops out of Syria now the, the secretary of state is calling this a tactical change
7: yeah i mean it's it's interesting to just listen to pompeo defend the president and say any of these allegations of any sort of you know suggestion that he would somehow be helping russia on the world stage is outrageous and then to listen to him and his descriptions and his contortions in syria around What the president announced in a pullout and then having to a a great unexpected announcement, which came, as everybody remembers, last month when President Trump said the U.S. would take its troops out um, and that, that that prompted this great fear that there would be this vacuum that could really strengthen ISIS and then feed influence in the region to Iran and Russia. So the context of this does directly involve Russia and what kind of role it could play in filling a vacuum if U.S. troops pull out. Pompeo now uh, talking about this as a tactical change rather than a troop redeployment. Um, You know, this is language that he's trying to cover up for a pretty uh, reckless. Announcement by the president of the United States. And it's pretty hard to watch our secretary of state go through all of these contortions to keep it all together. Yeah, I don't even really understand.
1: Like you know, that. the comment that Marjorie just referenced, which I guess he made in Abu Dhabi about the Syria thing, I don't even understand where it stands. I thought what happened is the president tweeted our withdrawal, which apparently virtually none of his top advisors were aware of. And then was it not Pompeo who said, uh, Don't worry, it's not happening so quickly? And now he appears to be saying it is happening, but don't worry because it's a tactical move. And I guess this morning the president said that if uh, Turkey tries messing with the Kurds, there'll be, quote, devastating uh, economic consequences for Turkey. So haven't they flipped not just once but twice on troop withdrawal? Am I right about that?
7: Well, the problem with having a boss like Trump is that you always have to jump through hoops and flip and do turns. And we're watching Pompeo do all of this acrobatics and the world stage, and it makes the United States look bad. You know, he's, well, he's basically I, I, I find it hard, it's hard to even try to interpret what he's trying to say, because it is shifting, as you point out. But basically, if I were going to try to understand Pompeo's logic here. He's got a boss who told no one about a bad idea, which is to announce overnight that you're just going to pull all your troops out because you create a vacuum that Iran and Russia can exploit. And instead, he's saying, OK, we're going to phase this thing. It's tactical. And I believe one of the statements he made was that just because you take a couple thousand uniformed personnel out uh, of Syria, that doesn't mean that your, your U.S. Yeah. interests have changed in the region. OK, that's true. But it is significant, and it is the, the question of the vacuum remains on the table. And this, um, this administration is plagued by uh, a president who doesn't understand all of the hydraulics of the Middle East and what it would really mean uh, if we left Syria. No one wants to be in Syria. No one wants the war in Syria to have happened. But it's on now. You pull out too early. Not only do you embolden ISIS, you create a vacuum for Russia, for Iran. I can't see how that's in in the interest of the United States.
1: Well, you know, speaking of Pompeo being in a different place than the president, I don't understand how one aligns what he apparently says to the crown prince in Saudi Arabia and what the president says. It seems to me that the president has said on the uh, murder of Khashoggi, uh, we stand with Saudi Arabia. But then we read the headlines in The New York Times saying that when Pompeo sits down with him, He confronts the crown prince and challenges him on Khashoggi. So what is our policy? What is our position?
7: (laughs) You know, I guess the the, the answer is no one knows, and I certainly don't know. But I know it's not uncommon for um, a secretary of state to have two different ways of messaging. There's one, the way you message to the world from the country you're visiting there's one where you message to the world back in the United States as a secretary of state and there's another one where you quietly negotiate one on one with a leader and that is where you can apply pressure and you can you can actually put forward a tougher line and i think in a, to be fair to this administration it is you can see a way in which all three of those things can be operating at the same time and that would not be unusual in diplomacy to
8: be doing that.
2: You know, just as a side story about Saudi Arabia, this is quite a story over the weekend about the uh, 18-year-old Saudi woman who bolt, uh, barricaded herself in a tie, host, tie in ho-
4: Canada. Yes. Yeah. And tell
2: us about this. Winds up in Canada. It was a great well, story.
7: It, it is a great story about about something that we don't pay enough attention to, which is what it's like to be a woman living in Saudi Arabia, yeah. in the tyranny that you suffer from your family. Um, literally, um, you know, uh, honor killings, as they're known, and I put that in huge quotes. There's no honor in killing a woman for any any reason of of who they date or how they live their lives or anything like that. But it is a legitimate fear that if you are a woman living in Saudi Arabia and your family has decided you've done something they don't like whether that's not wearing the hijab, which is the case with this woman, or dating someone who's outside of what they 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 the men in the family determine as an acceptable um, relationship. Yeah, it is a it can be as dangerous as uh, a death threat from your own family, and and people live in great fear. Women live in great fear inside of Saudi Arabia. So when she fled, and and ends up in Canada. She should be welcomed with open arms as a uh, as a, for political asylum. Yeah, please. I was sorry
2: it was Canada, not us, that was welcoming her with the open arms. Apparently, she tried to get to Australia, and that didn't work out so well. And when I read the stories about the Canadians, I, I it made me a little sad that it wasn't the Americans.
7: Yeah, that they that she didn't think to come here. Exactly, and know why she didn't. Um, and and you know this thing about about Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia lies really at the center of the Trump administration's new policies in the Middle East, and and both the murder of Khashoggi, this case with the woman, illustrate in two very different ways that this is a regime that is brutal, that doesn't care about human rights, it doesn't care certainly about women's rights, and that if you're going to build your 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 Middle East foreign policy around around an axis that puts the House of Saud right at the center. It is fraught with peril and it can come undone as we are witnessing in real time.
1: So, Charlie, Senate, tomorrow is the uh, vote. Theoretically, I guess it could be postponed again. But tomorrow is the vote on Brexit. What's going to happen? <laughs> You're asking me tough questions.
7: You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like. If I knew down. the
1: answer, I wouldn't ask you the questions. Unfortunately, I don't. So what is going to happen? Yeah, we figured you'd have the over-under, Charlie. That
7: here. That's, that's guessing is, is what I'm going to say. I think that that. That there is a, we said this. Remember, we said the exact same thing last week, and then they postponed the vote. Right, because she was going to lose. Saying it's decision time, and it's getting harder and harder to believe. It looked like she's going to lose the last vote. She postponed it. Postponed it. I don't see any major changes in the proposal, so I presume she could lose it here. And if she does lose it, what happens then would be she would have to then go back to the EU and beg for some change and the EU is in no mood to do that. They said, you guys decided to leave. You have this sort of populist reflexive reaction to our very complex global economy. And you didn't understand the value of being part of the European Union. So no, then then it's gonna be a hard exit and that's gonna be really bad for the UK's economy. And that's gonna really be bad for the world's economy. And so I think what happens tomorrow night uh, is, is pretty extraordinary and I, Presume they'll find some way to muddle through as the UK always always does a place of great resiliency and thoughtfulness. I can't believe this whole thing can unravel, but we won't know what will happen until it happens. It's just too close to call. It's too hard to read. There are a lot of variables within the very arcane. Rules of British parliamentary politics on how this could reshape whether or not there could be a no confidence vote. A pretty cascading set of complex factors will will start to pan out, but it's a little hard to predict exactly which way it'll go.
1: So uh, let me ask an easier question and uh, attribute the fact that I'm asking again to uh, short-term memory issues, because I, I know we've asked you this. Yeah. Why is why are the leaders of both parties against a revote? It seems to me it continues to be the easiest way out particularly in light of the fact that polls suggest, of course, polls were wrong last time too, I guess, uh, polls suggest that the the, uh, people of the U.K. would reverse themselves. Why are we not having another referendum?
7: Well, it's a good question. I think one reason is the hard right within the Tory party doesn't want to do that because they know they probably will lose. The hard left within the Labor Party doesn't want to know it because they'll probably lose. Remember, you have to remember the hard left Labor right. Party actually wants, it sees wisdom in getting out of the EU. So you have a, a kind of center mass that, that voted, a majority voted in favor of this idea of Brexit, of leaving the EU. But that center mass is kind of swirling and I think the extremes are driving that 2nd referendum as to why There's no clear majority coming out of both Tory and labor leadership right now. That said. I, I can't see that it wouldn't make the most sense. I, I agree with you, Jim. I keep coming back to the same question. What on earth would prevent this from going to another referendum? Hit reset that way. Maybe it's that the EU is just too impatient and they're not going to wait for it because it would take a long time to organize, but I doubt that. I think the EU would love to give UK a chance to rethink this.
2: So who's going to sink Theresa May's deal, and what's wrong with it?
7: Well, the way Theresa May's deal would would sink would be because she failed to get a convincing um, program that she can get through her own party. Okay. Uh, and she's just tried to she's tried to thread the needle through the middle. And it's not clear that her own party is going to accept that cabinet ministers are just openly pushing uh, for for the May deal um, to be defeated and to kind of redo the deal. And so there's going to be a lot of politics like I can guarantee you right now. That parliamentary building in London is boiling with energy and side deals and side meetings and everything is happening uh, in real time. The question at the end of the day is just going to be, did May pull this off? Can she hold it together? Can she win the confidence of the parliament to get this thing through? Or are they going to reject it, which seems quite possible, maybe even likely, and she's going to have to go back and eat humble pie at the EU and try to cut some other deal? I doubt she's going to be able to do that at the EU, but we're going to have to wait and see.
1: You know, one last thing. We only have a minute left. I, I, I thought the the story in the New York Times over the weekend: Brexit and the U.S. shutdown, two governments in paralysis, yeah. two governments paralyzed, <laughs> yeah. two populist projects stalled, two venerable democracies in crisis, painting the parallels between the dysfunction, the paralysis in the British government and in our government over pretty similar sets of issues around immigration, Charlie.
7: Yeah. I thought that was a really insightful piece. It's something that we were doing in the, in the last program. We were comparing yep. this, these two. And I think it's a really interesting way to look at how populism has given rise to both Brexit and the wall, sort of almost like a failure of the culture wars has has become an argument around border wars and how we define our borders and the fear of immigration and, and the context of a global economy that that really plays well to fear and how the far-right and populist movements are using that play to fear, both in the argument for Brexit and for the wall. Really interesting similarities. Great piece, Ellen Berry, former colleague of the Boston Globe. Oh, that's right, of Uh, course. That's right. So I I thought that story in itself was just, just extraordinary. and We're all scratching our heads, and we need to step back and look, how will historians write about the moment we live in? They'll look back and they will say these nationalist or almost nativist movements that came forth at this time in history were built on selling fear around immigration policy and global economies um, that really challenged uh, large swaths of the middle class in both countries sure. and challenged the way we think of each other. So, go. history is going to write.
1: Charlie, Charlie, thank you so hey, Charlie, much. Charlie,
2: thank you very much. Charlie is a news analyst here at WGBH where he heads up the Ground Truth Project. Up next, we're opening the lines and asking you about Trump's latest problems in Russia.
1: At noon on Boston Public Radio, we open the lines and ask you not about the Manchurian candidate, but the Moscow candidate. The New York Times is reporting the FBI launching an investigation into whether Trump was secretly working on behalf of Russia. we open lines and ask you if you're concerned that a man under investigation for treason, who continues to receive daily intelligence briefings focused on national security, is our president. And it's time for All Revved Up, and look at how the Vatican is weighing whether to defrock Cardinal Theodore McCarrick once a papal favorite.
2: From there, TV Bob Thompson goes over the best and worst TV moments of the week with a big shout-out to PBS. We wrap things up with Guster, the alternative rock band who got its start in Boston, has a new album coming out this week. We'll get a live preview from our Frasier Performance Studio right here at WGBH. All that is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7.
9: From a transmitter atop Great
10: Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio.
2: I'm Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello Jim.
1: Hey there. By the way, a lot of you are asking, what's the deal with Guster at 1.30 on the dot One i I'm so excited. They're going to join us and play for us live from their great new album uh, that's coming again at one thirty from here at GBH. But first, and this is the President of the United States answering a reporter's question earlier today. I
5: never worked for Russia. Not only did I never work for Russia... I think it's a disgrace that you even asked that question, because it's a whole big fat hoax. It's just a hoax.
1: We are now at the point where the president has to assure us that he was never a Russian asset. On Friday, as you know, we discussed this earlier, the New York Times reported the FBI opened an inquiry into whether Trump was working on behalf of Russia. Now the Washington Post is reporting, as we also discussed, that Trump actively concealed the content of some of his meetings with Vladimir Putin. Yes, this is not good news for the president, particularly as he heads into the 2020 election. But then again, does any of this come as a surprise, considering that Trump has been leaving breadcrumbs the size of pierogies connecting him to Russia since he launched his 2016 campaign? Here are just a few. First, he hires Paul Manafort, as his campaign manager, a man who spent the last 10 years promoting Russian interests in Ukraine. He openly calls for Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's email. We've seen Putin give Trump the big thumbs up at global summits. And last summer, Trump even thanked Putin for expelling hundreds of staffers out of the American embassy because he resulted in a, it resulted in a, quote, smaller payroll. Not to mention, obviously, the inter- Russian interference in the 2016 election. Our number is 877 301 Are these latest Russia bombshells actually bombshells, or is this just more of the same? If you're a Trump supporter, does this matter to you at all? If you're a Democrat, is the Russia connection a winning or losing strategy for the Democrats, 877 301 regardless of what people's answer is, I'll say what I said to Jennifer Becerra and Steve Kerrigan an hour or so ago. This is not the Democratic Party that launched an investigation as to whether or not Donald Trump was wittingly or otherwise working for the Russians. It was the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, after the firing of Comey. And while the president may say it's the most insulting question he's ever been asked. That's the most outrageous article that's ever been written. The fact remains, and no one is disputing it, the FBI, I think it was May of 2017, opened this investigation and the President of the United States is answering questions. And by the way, not from a hostile reporter. I don't know who the reporter asked the question today. Janine Pirro. Uh, You can't get any more trumped up than that on Fox News. Asked them the question, I think it was Saturday night, that the thing played. It is... Otherworldly, and the fact—speaking of world—the fact that the world doesn't stop at that moment when the president of the United States is investigated for his for potentially being an agent of Russia is unbelievable. And by the way, there may be no truth to the—but the no what there is he, he total truth be, to is the investigation right. was launched.
2: He could be totally innocent of this. It could be that he was an unwitting pawn uh, of or Russia, or that nothing happened, or that nothing—right—that he was—that he just uh, fired Comey. Uh...
1: Well, he said he fired him because of Russia. It doesn't mean that he was doing it <laughs> at the behest of the nefarious. Russians.
2: But there, but the things uh, you know it, it do add up. As you point out, uh, that you know, right after he fired Comey, he met with the uh, that Kislyak, the uh, Russian diplomat, and set up the
1: next day or the uh, couple of days. I don't later, know. I think. It was yeah. soon
2: thereafter, and 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 that was uh, an off-the-record uh, meeting where he. But we do know that he talked about the fact that it was great that get rid of James Comey because the pressure was off on Russia. Uh, there have been the money things that I mentioned before when Jennifer. Saris was here and Steve Kerrigan was here about how the Russians have repeatedly bailed out the Trump uh, uh, corporation how they spent about a hundred million on condos and uh, the Deutsche Bank which also gave a lot of money to the Russians is giving a lot of money to the Trump uh, organization there's been this weird thing that we talked about too about the meeting in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin where normally it, Normally presidents sit with other members of their cabinet and there are other people. It's not just the two leaders Mm -hmm. in the room alone with interpreters. But in this case, it was the the two leaders, Putin and, and Trump in the room alone with the interpreters. And then the president requested the transcripts from the interpreter, which is an odd thing. And
1: didn't he tell the interpreter not to, to disclose the content? Yes. Mean and then there
2: was all the talk right after the election. Remember, Jared Kushner was talking about back channels to the Russians, which uh, led some in the FBI to wonder, well, why do they need back channels? Were they going to be getting orders from the Russians on on what to do? And of course, in the in the Republican platform, in the uh, before he became the president, uh, they altered the the platform and it had to do with Ukraine, which is where. Paul Manafort was working for all those years. And of course, we know that Paul Manafort uh, shared polling data, which is not just the polling data, like who's winning and who's losing. It's the internal polling data, which talks a lot about certain parts of which states and what 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 um, kind of wedge issues that could get people revved up, or in the case that's often been made, that or, or dis- discourage people from voting, um, as many people argue that the Russian interference did too. So there's a lot of these things that kind of add up. Oh, I didn't mention this, that um, there, there have been 101 contacts between Trump's team and Russia, uh, uh, and the Trump team lied about or tried to cover up every single one of them. So as many people have pointed out, he's, he's not acting like someone who's got nothing to hide.
1: 877-301-8970. And, you know, the incredible thing, you and I had a little meeting yesterday, and we were talking about the interview with Janine Pirro. And uh, we were both remarking on what a lot of people were remarking on until this morning he didn 't answer the question he didn 't no, say didn't. no, and you said, and I hope people don 't take this in the wrong way. you said why didn 't he just lie, even if it was true like he does about so many other things and But I thought the exact same thing i mean obviously he as as many people have said he doesn 't live in yesterday or tomorrow, mm-hmm. he lives in the moment. And if what was helpful in the moment was to say, of course it's not true, maybe he thought by saying it's the most insulting question I've ever been asked, it's the most insulting thing that's ever been written about me, it was a de facto no. In his defense, maybe that is what he thought, but it was odd to me that he didn't just deny it, but he did deny it this morning. I have never worked for Russia, he says. Not only did I never work for Russia, I think it's a disgrace that you even asked the question he said as he was about to get – On a helicopter, but I'll tell you, uh, uh, I have a lot of respect for Jennifer Becerra. She's entitled to her opinion, very smart person. The fact that there is anybody in this country who is not jarred by the fact, regardless of what your conclusion is, that the Federal Bureau of Investigation debated and then decided to open an investigation as to whether or not the President of the United States uh, was working with Russia, was an unwitting pawn of Russia was something of Russia, to me, is unbelievable.
2: Remember, it wasn't long after this whole thing that Ron Rosenstein joked about wearing a wire. (laughs) We think he was joking, I don't know, about wearing a wire to record the president. they are unusual situations. And one last thing, and then we'll uh, get to the calls, 877-301-8970. You could argue that the president's uh, uh, kind of um, overnight announcement that he's pulling troops out of Syria uh, helps the Russians in Syria as well. Uh, anyway, let's start with Roger in Marblehead. Hi, Roger.
10: Hi. Good morning, guys. Hi. Hey. Um, I want to uh, remind you that we met in the uh, library last week. Uh, oh, great. Oh, yes. Oh, you Hi, were the Roger. guy who
1: suggested they should shut down the whole government, right?
10: No, I suggested they should there should be barricades and protests in front of Trump Tower. Oh, that
1: is what you said. Barricades. Yeah, my apologies. That's right.
10: It was good to meet you, Roger. It was a good call, too. All related. Yeah.
1: So what do you got you. this week? Um,
10: I I just want to say that it dawned on me, I was driving uh, in the car when when your show started, that we're literally living in like the Truman Show. This presidency from day one, from the day that clown came down the escalator in Trump Tower, that this thing has been produced, stage managed as a reality TV show. It's not even a presidency and that we're going to be, you know, you're not going to need historians to examine this presidency because you're just going to be watching it on reruns for generations to come. I mean, well, the, the whole thing... Go ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, and I was just going to... It just struck me as well that um, that when this guy's presidency is done, and hopefully that's much sooner rather than later, um, you're not going to build a, a presidential library for this guy. It's going to have to be a lie library. <laughs> I mean, this guy is every day, every minute of every second of the day... Um, it's just, it's just one lie after the next, and I'm pretty convinced that he's a traitor at the end of the day, and uh, bad things or good things don't happen to traitors. Well, two so. things.
1: One, thank you for your call, obviously, and uh, that's a pretty good line. I wish I'd come up with that. Uh, and secondly, we have no idea. Uh, we, we just don't, and that's why Bob Mueller is there, uh, Use the term traitor. We have no idea if he was unduly influenced by Russia, if he chose to work with Russia, or if there was any uh, connection other than from the Russian side of the equation but that 's why we have Mueller and the the thing that 's heartening Roger, and thank you for your call is William Barr, who is the president 's nominee to be the next attorney general, who I think is testifying in front of the Senate next Tuesday and Wednesday. the confirmation hearings has said in the last twenty four hours, even though he 's been very critical as a private citizen of the Mueller investigation, that not only does he want the Mueller investigation to reach its natural conclusion, but that within certain bounds, and I don't know what that exactly means, he uh, believes there should be as much transparency with the report as possible, both in terms of its release to Congress and to the American people, because I think a lot of people do not know. They're all waiting uh, nervously, regardless of your point of view, for the Mueller report. It goes to the Department of Justice, to the Attorney General, and he could th- decide not to release any of it, not just to us, but to Congress. That doesn't mean that the House wouldn't – the Democratic House wouldn't subpoena Mueller or pieces of this. But uh, assuming that Barr means that, I think that's a heartening statement from the attorney general
2: nominee. Robert E. Mielsen says it's its probably true that he never worked for Russia he might have just volunteered for Russia. <laughs> There's a big difference. As Stephen says, he doesn't buy that he worked for Russia for a minute because surely the Russians could have found a more competent secret agent. You
1: know, Jennifer, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she was criticizing the FBI for having, even having done this. You should read the, the CNN report, which I didn't have uh, when we were talking, about how this was not just the rogue <laughs> behavior of one leader of the FBI. CNN has gotten a hold of, uh, of transcripts of debates internally amongst the senior leaders there about whether or not this was a good idea. So this was again, this was a decision made by a number of uh, longtime veterans of law enforcement in this country that was appropriate to start an investigation. And I repeat, we have no idea what the conclusion is. We know it's passed along to Bob Muller. And we have yet to do, to know well, what he is concluding. You no, know,
2: we know here in Boston better than most because of the FBI's disgraceful performance in the Whitey Bulger case that the FBI makes mistakes, but I just don't see this. I, I, I never bought these, you know, uh, first of all, I would imagine there was an awful lot of FBI people that were. Uh, Trump voters that were not Hillary voters that might have preferred Donald Trump to, to Hillary Clinton for economic reasons, if, if for any reasons. But well, I
1: hope that it wouldn't cause them to say no, if the merits I, were such I just that, they, that an investigation don't... made sense, there shouldn't be one because I voted for the president.
2: Well, what I'm saying is I find it hard to believe that um, the heads of the Justice Department or the heads of the FBI are in these uh, conspiracy the things. Let's, let's go out and get Trump. Uh, it just doesn't ring true to me.
1: 877-301-8970. So want to know what your uh, reaction was to the news in the New York Times. Then there was the uh, Janine Pirro question. In fact, can we play both these things? By the way, if you tuned in later, here is the interview that played Saturday night with Janine Pirro asking Donald Trump a question relating to this. And when that's done, we'll play you what Trump said in response to a question before he got on the helicopter this morning. Here's the Piro interview on Fox News.
4: Have you ever worked for Russia, Mr. President? I think it's the
5: most insulting thing I've ever been asked. I think it's the most insulting article I've ever had written. Uh, and if you read the article, you'd see that they found absolutely nothing. But the the headline of that article, it's called The Failing New York Times for a Reason. They've gotten me wrong for three years. They've actually gotten me wrong for many years before that.
1: Okay, and virtually every observer said it was interesting that he didn't go out of his way to say, no, I did not. But he did this morning in response to a reporter's question uh, as he was about to board a helicopter. Here it is.
5: I never worked for Russia. Not only did I never work for Russia, I think it's a disgrace that you even asked that question, because it's a whole big fat hoax.
2: It's just a hoax.
1: I don't know what is the, the big but five again, hoax. I assume is that he says he didn't work for them. The uh, Russia
2: investigation is a hoax. Oh, I see. Even though we've had a bunch of people, you know, Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, Michael Flynn, uh, who have all been involved. Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen if, if, have pled or been involved with law enforcement. Roger Stone, who's quite the character, um, he he uh, was in contact with this um, with Russian conduit WikiLeaks. Um, and uh, WikiLeaks is the one that released all those emails of John Podesta, which uh, got Hillary Clinton in hot and Stone apparently
1: to. knew in advance that uh, they were about to be released. And the
2: day, the day that uh, that Trump on the campaign trail said, "Oh, let's WikiLeaks, let's see if we can find Hillary Clinton's emails," that was the day. Urge
1: Russia to do yes. it. Yes, I have to say, in and I don't know, and I'm trying to probe his mind. I thought he meant that as a joke, uh, even though that's on everybody's list yeah. of uh, things that suggest that he the has timing. an unholy it relationship been. to it Russia. Been. It was a poor joke, but I thought he meant it as a but
2: joke. But the timing of them suddenly looking at the yeah. emails is rather odd.
1: Let's go to Tim in Rye, New Hampshire. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for calling, Tim. Hi.
9: Good morning, and, and thanks for taking my call. Sure. I- I listen to your show whenever I can. I'm, I'm always at work, so sometimes I can't call in or can't listen. Anyways, back to Trump. Back to Trump. Sure. Nothing he does surprises me. I mean, the day shortly before he was inaugurated in January 2017, the guy wrote a check for 25 million dollars to settle claims of fraud and racketeering. Is the Trump and- University thing you're talking
1: about? <laughs> yes.
9: Yeah, man. Of course it is. And and like, what were people thinking? They didn't, they didn't, they didn't think that was unusual. And that the, what about the fact that the guy went bankrupt six times and couldn't get a, a dime from a bank in the United States. And then his own son tells golf magazine a few years ago, Oh, we have no problem buying these expensive golf courses. We get all our money from Russia. The guy is – I don't know if he's an agent. He's not smart enough to be an agent, but he's definitely
1: a puppet. Tim, thanks for the call. By the way, for those who hadn't heard those comments before, both Eric and Donald Jr. made comments uh, like that about the ease of getting money from the Russians.
2: Here's what Eric Trump said in 2014. We don't rely on American banks. We have all the funding we need out of Russia. That was Eric. It was. 877. And, uh, and, uh, and Donald said – Don Jr. Don Jr. Russians make up a pretty disproportionate cross-section of a lot of our assets. And don't forget we now know that he was trying – the president was trying to build a, uh, a Trump Tower over there with a fifty million penthouse apartment on the top.
1: And again, we do know that the Russian uh, leadership interfered in our election. That is a – these are facts. We don't know uh, what, again, what the result of this FBI investigation was. It has been passed on to Mueller, but the mere fact that it exists is just—it's staggering to me. And you know, it, it's almost like I—I I don't know what the alternative <laughs> is,
2: but the fact that the world goes on as normal and it's considered another well, news exactly. event. Can you imagine if the FBI opened an investigation that, that Barack Obama was in the tank with Kenya, where he was supposedly born – well, not Kenya because it's a little tiny country. doesn't it really have a, It's not a big world player. But, I mean, if he was in the tank with with, with Russia. Well, Russia – with... I,
1: mean, I mean, Jennifer was right. He made that comment that I think he thought was uh, not going to be heard by a reporter. Remember that comment? After the election, yep. we'll have more maneuverability or whatever he said, which I thought was an, an inappropriate comment. But I agree with you. It would seem to me – that the whole country, I would hope in bipartisan fashion, would be up in arms if any president – if it, again, we want to hear the results. But the fact that we just move on like it's another but, you know, news it's cycle. It's
2: everything. I mean think about this. I mean a lot of these presidents, we all know they a lot of them have had fooled around and had affairs and stuff. But it's really unusual for one to have um, an alleged affair with a Playboy bunny and a porn star and the same weekend in the same <laughs> – <laughs> and then have to pay them both off. There.
1: She was there. He was there, so. Yeah,
2: th- he was there. You know, yeah. usually it's, it's. And it, well, it's,
1: try to make the best use of your time. When you have <laughs> limited, I mean, I've always found if you can do two things while you're, you know, really just. Yeah. 877 301 one eighty We're talking about the story that broke uh, in the New York Times, I guess it was on Friday, about the FBI starting, I think it was in May seventeen. 2017, right after the firing of Comey, an investigation into the whether or not the president was an agent of the Russians, working with the Russians, wittingly, unwittingly, and that was followed, I guess, 24 to 36 hours later by the Washington Post story about the president uh, taking away the notes of the interpreter of at least one of his meetings with Vladimir Putin and telling him or her that uh, they should not share that with anybody. You know, it's one thing that the, the American people... Don't know what happened in those meetings. At least the reports I read, his senior advisors Correct. don't know what happened in uh, those meetings. 877 301 And by the way, we're taking calls as we always do in the order in which they come. We'll make an exception. If somebody uh, who calls in, and the lines are all full, but as soon as one opens up, who believes this is much ado about not much and that uh, the FBI is this corrupt enterprise and you shouldn't spend a minute on this, we will take you out of order. So there's a little more balance, but I don't really know where the balance comes from here. Brendan in the car. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey.
11: Hey, Jim and Marjorie. I hope all is well. So I think, you know, whether or not Trump is a Russian agent um, is sort of erroneous if he's going to govern as if he is one. Um, You know, I think uh, odds are pretty good that the Mueller report is going to draw that conclusion. Um, But even if it doesn't and it fully exonerates him, look, he's, Anti NATO, he's pro autocrat. Um, if it's not necessarily because they got dirt on him, he clearly has some type of affection, whether it's ideological or politically, for Putin, for Russia. Um, and, and I think that's the question for the American public if the Mueller report does. It. I think Oops. is unlikely. Um, do we want a president that's that's going to represent Russia's interests more than ours?
1: And, and your point, I mean, he has the Russian position on NATO. He has the Russian position on Afghanistan. He has the Russian position on Syria. But in fairness to him, I guess, at least on the Afghanistan-Syrian front, uh, this is and this is sort of a variation of what Bacevich, Andrew Basevich said to us the other day. The guy campaigned as one. Who was going to uh, long before we knew right. about the Putin connection, uh, or the the at least the the sort of bro kind of relationship they seem to have from time to time. He campaigned on the notion that he wanted to pull out of these places. Right.
2: Well, I think Basevich's objection, and correct me if I'm wrong, was not that he wanted to get out of Syria. was how he announced getting out of Syria. Mm-hmm. Kind of an and overnight. And he had no plan. Yeah, you're... an overnight kind of thing and, and, and not talking to your allies about this and how it was going to be conducted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because Andrew Basevich has long argued, and he's a, um, a great professor at Boston University, is long uh, emeritus I think he is at this point, okay. has long argued that uh, we are – Wasting our blood and treasure on these never ending, forever wars, and what is the end game? Well, we've
1: said the same thing with far less. Uh, uh Substantive yeah. uh, knowledge. Well, than Barack Andrew Obama
2: ran on getting out of um, Iraq and Afghanistan too, and, and often when they get in there, um, it doesn't turn out that way. Anyway, we're talking about Trump and the latest reporting of the New York Times and the Washington Post that details his questionable dealings with Russia. We're going to keep talking about it on 897 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live. No, we're not. We're here in the studio, actually, at uh, in Brighton.
1: to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're talking about Trump and his latest Russia woes from New York Times reporting the FBI investigated if Trump is working on behalf of Russia and the Washington Post following up reporting that Trump went out of his way to conceal what he and Putin discussed over the course of several meetings since uh, Donald Trump became president. 877 301 Where are you on this? Is, it just, is this just more of the same? Are you withholding judgment until the Mueller investigation comes out? And if you didn't read the New York Times story, rather than Marjorie and I characterizing it. Let me just read you the first paragraph of the story from February, from January 11th, just a few days ago. In the days after President Trump fired James Kobe, Comey as FBI director, law enforcement officials became so concerned by the president's behavior that began investigating whether he'd been working on behalf of Russia against American interests, according to former law enforcement officials and others familiar with the investigation. And Comey was fired in May of 20. Uh, 20- Seventeen. To me, it is a an historic moment, regardless of how Robert Mueller uh, decides the issue. It's- well,
2: you know, we have to go back and look at our American history. But I, I was there. Another president that was thought to be a foreign agent.
1: Not that I'm aware. I think uh, a Manchurian candidate may have been, but that was a fictional. <laughs> oh Yeah, that account. was a, that was
2: a fake. That was a, a movie. It wasn't real life. I, I could be wrong. I, I don't recall one. Maybe someone can tell us if they they know about one. Eight seven
1: seven three zero one eighty nine seven. I'm sorry. Murder. Let's go
2: to Reed in North Andover. Hi, Hi Reed. Reed. Good morning.
7: Hi. Um, I, I just wanted to say that. Uh, I used to think, I thought it was out at the beginning of the Trump campaign that he had chosen so many people with a relationship with Russia. And I now realize I I was naive. I believe that Paul Manafort is as compromised as Trump is, and that all these other people were assigned to the campaign through Russian handlers. I think that's how they got there. I think Putin helped him assemble this team for that very reason. These people are all back-channel conduits into the campaign, and now those that are left, into our government. Well, there I,
1: I have no idea if any of that is true, and I surely hope it is not. There are a lot of Russian uh, connections, and Reid, thank you for the call. should we read the great uh, piece that Andy Barowitz, America's, at least our favorite satirist, wrote the other day. No. The, to break the logjam over the shutdown. Uh, that Nancy Pelosi decided to cut out the middleman and she was going to negotiate the uh, resolution directly with Vladimir Putin. So (laughs) why go through Donald Trump when she could deal with the decision maker directly? It's funny, but it's really not that funny at all. 877-301-897. You know what's also not funny at all? Speaking about the reaction that people are having to this, while they're – is no factual there is a factual basis obviously to suggest not suggest to demonstrate that the FBI did open an investigation there's no factual basis to conclude that uh he is a russian agent could uh, somebody still on the line if you can get rid of them uh that call please in our ear thank you uh, uh what is indisputable which seems to have just totally watered down the whatever it's called is the russians interfered in our election correct they had access to what 126 million people on facebook well we don't have any idea even though i read a story over the weekend that suggests that they have proved based on some scientific research that there was an impact on the outcome i've never seen anything convincing to suggest there was an impact other than the fact that there were the contact that's almost or or you used to ask the question all the time every time we had somebody in are we better a member of congress are we better prepared for, oh, it was 2016, 2018, you asked about. Well, 2018 is now over. Yeah, are we better prepared for 2020 that there not be Russian influence in our presidential decision I don't making know. then? Well,
2: 2018 seems to be mostly about voter suppression, um, but I have no idea if there were people, we certainly haven't heard about it in 2018 of, of Russian influence. Maybe they're waiting until two, 2020. I have no idea.
1: Bill and Sudbury, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you and
9: welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon.
2: Uh, not only are we at
9: this weird place where the president has been being investigated for counterintelligence, but
2: we're also at a place where the president's denials
9: are almost meaningless. Not many people believe him anymore when he denies it.
2: Yeah. Well, he does have a credibility problem uh, um, you know, that's been documented over and over again. That I forget the percentage, but consider number, numbers of Americans don't think he's truthful.
1: Uh, and over the whole...
9: Yeah, but but the whole
2: thing that they the whole thing that they didn't tell me
9: all counterintelligence investigations are secret. Of course, they didn't tell him.
2: Yeah, well, again, you know, it's very likely. I mean. I, 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 can't, I find it hard to believe that Donald Trump is a Russian agent. I think he might have been an unwitting help to the Russians, and not that I have any inside information. But the fact that they even began this investigation at some point, maybe they've ended it. Maybe we don't know if they've ended it or not, is just pretty shocking. So Wait, uh, why?
1: Bill, thank, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, Finish.
2: Why doesn't, he cop, why doesn't he just cop to it? Why doesn't he say that in the beginning of this process
9: when I didn't have any supporters, I was – anybody who came through the door, I was welcoming, and some shady Russians came in, and I was a little slow to react. Well, I would I just say just the cop, reason he doesn't
1: cop to it, to use your term, Bill, is because he denies it. So uh, – and until we have uh, proof from Bob Mueller to the contrary, his denial is as – well, I was going to say as credible as anything else, but you're right. He did tell 7,000 lies according to the <laughs> Washington Post – in his first two years in office. Bill, thank you uh much for the call. But, you know, the one connection, uh, you touched on this before, since a year ago maybe, 18 months ago, Juliet Kayyem has been saying follow the, follow money. the money. And there, it, there are a lot of Russian uh financial connections into the Trump organization. And that doesn't prove anything. It's just... Circumstances, it's environmental information, but the quotes from Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, the were uh, the the purchases with cash that have been made by the Russians through the years from the Trump yeah, organization. Yeah, was it a hundred million dollars worth million, of uh, hundred
2: nine yeah. million worth of uh, properties? That's a lot of money.
1: Well, I think it's more than that. I think that's with cash. Is that not
6: what they yes, say there? Yes, cash. All yeah. cash purchases. Yeah.
2: A red flag for potential money laundering. That's one of the theories is that a lot of the condos in the uh, Trump Tower in New York City are um, money laundered apartments belonging to Russians who paid with, with cash. And there's the sons talking about how they don't have to worry about getting money from American banks because they get all their money um, through excuse me, uh, all the funding we need out of Russia, said Eric Trump in 2014. But I get back to that tax story that that, That
1: got no no play. play. Was that because of uh, Kavanaugh? Kavanaugh, yeah.
2: But, you know, you basically see Trump uh, becoming a landlord at the age of like seven or something. He was a millionaire by the time he was nine. It was all having to do with his father and that uh, his father was the big genius behind the Trump empire and that Trump would drive these reporters around and say, oh, look at my building here. Oh, look at my building there. And in fact, it wasn't his building. It was his father's building. And his father repeatedly bailed him out. And was tr- and when Trump was losing millions and millions and millions of dollars, Suddenly, he had a huge income, and the income was because he and his siblings sold the father's real estate empire, which was massive. But before they stole the empire, Trump tried to shaft his own father, who bailed him out over and over again, uh, and changed the will. And the elder Trump had the wherewithal, even at his advanced age, to say, hold on, hold on, and get the other siblings in there to make sure that um, Donald Jr. couldn't, or or Donald, whatever he is, he's not his father's Fred. Trump, that, that Donald couldn't uh, Donald shaft. was in the
1: soon to be pre- future yes, president. Yes, could not the shaft
2: uh, his his siblings, but it was the, the father. It wasn't Trump.
1: Yeah, know, we talking about lying uh, a couple of minutes ago and the number of lies the Washington Post has detected. The, the one to me that was most suggestive of the notion that it may be pathological. Which is the building that he said had more floors? Is it Trump Tower? Oh, yeah. He lied about how many floors there were
2: (laughs) (laughs) because he wanted it to be a bigger skyscraper than it is. I think he added on, what, eight floors or something like that?
1: Brooke, I don't know where you're calling from, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Hi. Hi, Brooke. Oh, hi.
8: Oh, hi. It's Barbara.
1: Oh, Barbara. Sorry. Our fault. Uh, Hi, Barbara. Welcome to the show.
8: Thank you. You know, I, I don't know why we are surprised at this. We shouldn't be. We've been prepared. He's told us everything about him from day one, starting with the day he made that statement that he could stand outside of Park Avenue and Madison Avenue, whatever Fifth, street Fifth was, Avenue, but that's okay. Fifth Avenue and um, shoot somebody and still get away with it. I do believe the man is is capable of... Anything, I don't think he's very intelligent, so I don't really think he is a Russian agent. As, as a matter of fact, by the I way, he's smart enough this. to
1: get elected president of the United States, uh, Barbara. For whatever I that's know. Worth.
8: W- which will probably always be a mystery to me, but um, that goes to show you where the where we are in this country. I I do believe that. I hate to say it, but it really does go to show you where at least half of the population is in this country in regards to how he did get elected. But I don't believe the man has a sense of scruples. I really don't. I think he's capable of anything and everything because he really only cares about how much power he can have and what he can say. Whatever he wants to do, whatever he wants to say, he does it. I mean, he's... Yeah, but Barbara,
1: there are a lot of behaviors that uh, you may, it sounds like, from your bent here, would criticize... To me, they're all in one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is uh, the issue raised in the New York Times piece about potentially being an agent of the Russian – that's a different kettle of fish than being self-serving. I would argue it's even different than emoluments even though they're banned by the Constitution. This is – A pretty serious thing. But again, we should say, despite the conclusion that a lot of you, and it sounds like you, Barbara, have made, there is no conclusion. The only fact we know about this is the FBI started an investigation in May of 2017 and was ultimately passed on to Bob Mueller, Robert Mueller. We have no idea how he has or will conclude on that issue. But Barbara, thank you much but for But you know, call. I
2: always defend the election of Donald Trump for a couple of reasons. Hillary Clinton was not the most inspiring candidate. Donald Trump ran as a populist, as I wrote in the Globe the other day. He's governed like Marie Antoinette. You had mean, a lot
1: of comments on that story, by the way. I don't I, know if you noticed, like hundreds, and, a lot hundreds of and hundreds yeah. um, and hundreds.
2: Uh, and, you know, given tax breaks to the millionaires and billionaires, et cetera, et cetera. But the Democrats um, ignored the, the travails of the of the middle class or the Republicans under Trump have ignored them, too. But at least that was Trump's shtick running as a populist. He was going to help the forgotten man. I think what's had,
1: a, why are you bringing that up now? Because
2: Barbara just said she she can't believe people voted for him. I can. I mean, he's an he's a, he's a entertainer. He's a television star. He knows well, brilliantly how to be in front of the camera. there's another reason they
1: voted for him. And I know this upsets Hillary Clinton supporters. The best line – which I've repeated a thousand times by Trevor Noah, said Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, they're running, the two luckiest people on the planet, they're rolling, running against the only person they could ever possibly beat. They were the two least popular candidates in the history of uh, presidential polling. Sonia, uh, uh, on the pike, you're next and I think last on this topic on Boston Public Radio. Hi there. Good morning. Hi. You're on, you know- Sonia.
4: The firing of the, the firing of James Comey was not exactly the first sign that Trump was uh, a little bit off when it came to Russia. I mean, turn back the clock a generation. Republicans would have been stunned, right? Stunned to find a member of their party behaving in this bizarre way toward Russia, Be, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. You don't
1: have to turn the clock back far at all. I think you turn the <laughs> clock back a day before that. Yeah.
4: Right. And this has been incredibly unpatriotic, okay? Forget illegal or illegal. To me this is just incredibly unpatriotic. And when I saw that story in the Times the other day, I thought, hmm, remember when we all laughed when Trump said, Oh, I think Trump Tower is bugged. <laughs> well I mean the hello? Obama thing. <laughs> I, I yeah, I mean yeah, it was uh, it was goofy and it was a story that was quickly denied and forgotten, but it's very funny. The other morning when I was reading that article, I thought, that's the first thing that popped into my mind. I said, oh, Gee, we were all laughing when, the, when we thought that uh, Trump was booked in Trump Tower. Now it doesn't even sound funny anymore. It's amazing how things that like just a short time ago sounded utterly ridiculous are happening, and, and this is our new reality. It's like you're saying, Tim, this is so stunning that the world just continues to go on every day.
1: Well, Sonia, thank you for the call. I, I am – again, I don't have a, an alternative as to how we should behave. Should we not go to work? Should we just stay in bed? Should we sit on the couch on our underwear? I don't know what it is. It just seems to me this New York Times story was a major story. That, at least in no. my estimation, got not much more attention no, it's not, than any day's it's story. it's not every on Donald day Trump. that
2: somebody says, that suspects the that the United president States not, is, a secret is an agent, agent of a foreign government. Yeah, think about that. Who are the other secret agents besides James Bond? First of all, Bond? they did
1: not, we've got to be clear, they did not say that he was. They no, s- chose to they investigate They chose an investigation,
2: and it's very likely that he has absolutely been exonerated. That he is not a secret agent. We don't know if it's
1: likely or not. Or
2: that he was an unwitting secret agent. Who else besides James Bond? Sean Connery. Remember, can you do the James James Bond. I'm James Bond.
1: No, I'm not going to do any more imitations I was humiliated the other day. I was.
2: <laughs> I think you did a very, I think you did a very nice job. You did nice. To me. With I did Mr.
1: Red <laughs> and he was nice to me.
2: Okay, coming up we're going to talk with Irene Runroe, take on the uh, moral issues of the day including whether the movie Green Book was a whitewash of the past to make the film a populist favorite. We're talking about that and much more with Irene up next on 897 WGBH. He's Jim Browdy.
1: And she's Marjorie
2: Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston.
1: Online at WGBHnews.org.
2: Boston's local NPR.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Marjorie Here with us in Studio 3 to take on the moral dilemmas of the day is Reverend Irene Monroe. She's a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston voice for Detours African-American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU School of Theology. She, along with Emmett Price, joins us every Monday for All Revved Up. Emmett is not here today. He'll be back next week. Irene said, and I don't believe her, that he ceded all of his time. Yes, he did
0: to her, knowing uh, that he would uh, never be able to get it back. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: so I am glad to be here, but not, with, but not without him. I know we, we miss, miss we him miss too. him. We him. He'll see be though, back Irene. next time. So, uh, I'm dying to talk to you about this movie, Green Book. It's become very popular. It's mentioned for the upcoming uh, Academy Awards. Peter Farrelly's book, um, mm-hmm. and, her, and 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 Ursula Ali got yes. a Golden glow for it. That's right. He's a really
0: good actor. Oh, he, he I watched definitely. Him true he was
1: in last the, night. and in Moonlight. Oh, was is it good? He, oh is it good? Yeah.
2: And the he was pack. in that oh. other one that won the Academy Award, uh, uh, Moonlight. Moonlight. Absolutely, was terrific... you
0: know what he is? He's our contemporary. I, I, this is, I'm so old school, but um,
2: uh, Belafonte. Well, He's he was in, in House
1: of Cards too, by the way. That's where most of us met. Met him, really? In House of okay. Cards. Yeah.
2: But okay. So anyway, there's a lot of controversy surrounding Green Book. Tell us why.
0: Okay. Well, one of one of I mean, the closest, well, people need to know the premise of it. It's it's where you have this kind of bigoted Italian-American who's hired as a driver and a bodyguard for uh, pianist Don Shirley. Now, a lot of people, a lot of, fo- I should say white folks don't know Don Shirley, but he's a classically trained African-American pianist, and he's also gay. And so the problem with the story is that it's really the white version of driving Miss Daisy. So here you have this this northern, you know, guy, the guy from the north, never been south, is going to drive him through the South using what is called the Negro Motorist Guidebook. Uh, are you
2: familiar? I've, yes, I've had the to, yeah, the green book.
0: Yeah, the green book. Do you here. know where and, to stop
2: and stay right. and all that?
0: And and so, of course, as we were saying before before we got on the air, it's a kind of retake-like of, of the help, as if this guy you know, lived in isolation. The family is in a big kerfuffle about Shirley's it. Shirley's family. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it gives us a notion that he was estranged not only from his black family, and one can think... Not, you know, understanding that he's gay, that perhaps he was because he was gay, but that is not the case. Um, That he's disconnected from the black community. Did you see the the movie? No, I did not. It, 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 It was suspect because here was this guy supposedly, you know, clueless about the ways of the South. He grew up in the South. And then when he gets into real trouble, he's able to call one of the Kennedy boys. That suggests that this guy is pretty connected here. But it devalues the narrative of what the importance of the Green Book what, how that saved so many lives here, um, and and again using what we call that trope of 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 the you know white, white saying, hero yeah yeah
2: and you know you see this over and over again. I mean we talked about it before we went on the air. This was so obvious in the Help, which is the movie of all these black maids which were who were really <laughs> sticking their necks out because they were going to get fired and lose their jobs, and sometimes they did, and somehow they got rescued by this white woman writing a book about them. She wasn't sticking her neck out at all. The maids were, or Mississippi Burning, which is another That's right. one of those. And, and to forget that there, that, and even again to forget,
0: even in Don Shirley's narrative as well as the hate, the, I mean the the I call it the hate, the the uh, the help uh, that the civil rights movement was 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 afoot. It's, it's just as simple as that. And by the way,
1: I think we said I thought to you, but maybe someone else last week, the Viola Davis. who obviously. Stars in the Help has subsequently said she regrets having she made should. it for the reasons that she you're talking she about.
0: absolutely should, and I understand that you know she she was she was born on a, you know she grew up in, on a plantation or was raised no born on a plantation raised in Rhode Island, and that her mother was was a maid, and I understand that Octavia Spencer, as we well know, got the award uh, got for best supporting actress so. for for playing a maid. You know, on some level, I get it, because remember what Hattie Daniels said when she won her award and gone, gone with, the with win. She said, I'd rather play a maid than be a maid. But that's ni- the that's 1930s. Green. We're yeah. talking about, you know, 2015 here and stuff. So Viola bothered me when she rescinded, largely because I know she knows this history. She's not, she's not clueless.
2: Yeah. Have you seen the other one, If Beale Street Could Talk? Oh, James my Ball? God.
0: It is just absolutely a wonderful love story. I, what I loved about it, I just have to say, is that what we don't depict in terms of black suffering uh, it is, is that there's love that goes on. Yeah. And it's and it's a hard love because we can't protect our loved ones. And here is this gentleman, this poor guy, Fani, who, who's you know accused of a crime, as, as we hear a lot, yeah, that's another kind of racial trope for a crime he didn't, you know, he didn't do, and
2: he's he's in jail. Yeah, he's in jail. It's um, and it's based it's on a James. It's a James Baldwin. Baldwin yeah, I think it's a short story. It is. Well, it's a novel. It's a novel. Oh, it's a novel. Yeah, okay. it's a novel. We're talking but, Irene Monroe. I thought it could have moved a little
0: faster. Oh, I could, and it came, and it came out in the slow. 70s. It's a very different kind of novel. It, 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 it wasn't one of his protest kind of narratives. So
1: we're talking Irene Monroe, and it's now uh, Pope Watch time, and oh, uh, Emmett is not here for this, so we're depending on you, Irene. I, I'm, uh, you know,
0: I'm going to use his voice, too. I hope you do. Okay. Uh,
1: Theodore McCarrick, the ex-Cardinal. Uh, court, here's the headline from the Washington Post. The Vatican moves quickly towards punishing ex-Cardinal McCarrick for sexual abuse. He faces the prospect of being defrocked, which in English means not only would he not be a priest, he loses his church-funded housing, financial support. Lay aside is the word. They said it. How big a deal would this be if they were to take – that's a rather extreme move, even though it seems to me to be deserved, a rather extreme move for the hierarchy of the Catholic Uh, Church. Moving
0: quick, this is all PR. As we know that in February from this February coming, the 21st to the – 24th, there's going to be this big sort of... Um, the bishops? Bishops yeah. at the Vatican to Talking talk about child to abuse. each other. So I think you need a kind of, you know, check, like we, we we got one, but the point about it is that they've known of this this guy for decades. Even the guy that succeeded him also knew about it. But I think what we're trying to do is do the impossible, because what we're trying to do is get a culture, and I, and, and we got to admit that within the Vatican there is a rape culture. So we're asking people who have... Uh, Asking even these bishops, who may very well have been victims of rape or have been predators themselves, to correct a problem that is very systemic.
1: We should be clear here, by the way, and please correct me, one of you, too, if I'm wrong— but McCarrick, what McCarrick accused of is not just one of these supervisory, turning the other eye, uh, turning a blind There's eye, no, sleep, but of actually abusing several minors yes. and minors from what I oh, understand. Oh, absolutely. three hundred. Th- yeah,
0: like 300 what? Indi- not indictments, but 300 people came forth. Yes, you know, the,
1: the interesting question here, and I, I know this is uh, for some beating a dead horse, but until it's resolved to me, it's an open question. We still have not seen an investigation—we brought this up with the Attorney General at least two occasions—of the, the, the position taken by Cardinal O'Malley through his secretary that two letters about uh, yeah. sexual abuse, one about McCarrick, uh, were not acted on by Cardinal O'Malley because, according to his secretary, he never passed the letters on to Cardinal O'Malley. Do you not think— we are entitled to some sort of investigation as to what he knew, if anything, and when he knew it?
2: I think the, the the Helen Dryden piece was the head of Simmons College and the Globe, said that the Catholic Church has to divide itself priests and bishops and of course, it would be nice if there were some women in there, but in any case, they can do the pastoral end of things and they have to have professionals in there running. The oh, that's well, that's right. nice
1: going the, forward, but I, again, do you not have interest? I would hope everybody I would has know interest what, yeah. in, well, I guess if what I'm he saying actually knew about Yeah, The
2: lead of this story in the Washington Post talks about how they're going to punish ex the cardinal uh, for sexual abuse, sentencing the cleric in its secretive justice system. That's the problem. They can't be running a secretive justice system. They can't have the priests and the bishops to these things, they need to bring in lay people and professional people to run the the criminal and you know to supervise well, they, the criminal end of this they, and to and to run the business end of things. They just can't do it.
0: They need to clean house, and and, and so, the, so the one of the things that we we're not understanding is how do you clean up a rape culture. And I think that once we can address that, I think we can have, as you're saying, different types of people come in and do the kind of not only investigative work, but the kind of spiritual development uh, in terms of bringing back parishioners, also addressing those that have been abused by this. You know, there was a study that was out that said that the psychosexual development of most priests is arrested. So, And, and, and so if you're growing up in a, a culture that's the seminary, that's the church, these men are as well intended or frightened that they may be of being laicized that they that might they might be, they can they're not equipped to do it. They're just not equipped to do it.
1: Tony uh-huh. Irene Monroe.
2: Okay, let us move on. Let's go to uh this nun speaking of the Catholic Church, uh, who's running this shelter and, and down at the God border. Bless her. And she wanted the president to come and visit the shelter and she wanted to at least be able to talk to him about the kind of suffering she sees every day. She got to do neither.
1: Well didn't wasn't she also told that she would she get would. access she to the president. She thought she was going yeah. to
2: she thought she was going to be able to talk to the president. And then she ended up just having to sit there silently while um the some passed her from six and a half hours away told are we was doing a great are, job
0: Now, are we, surpri- are we surprised? This woman is doing justice work. This is a president has has used the word infestation. I mean, he's dehumanized them in so many ways. He's called them, what, rapists, criminals, drug dealers. He's saying that, the, what is it, the group, not the gang, MS-13 is crossing the borders. I think to date, unfortunately, two children have died. Is it due to dehydration or something I happened? I don't think we know why. Okay. All right. So, and then, again, in, in his effort, he's got this sort of doggedness about building the wall. And I remember, we all remember running a campaign, you know, slogan on uh, Mexico would pay. So, I mean, you can't, this is a, this is not, we can't expect Donald to change Donald. We we need the Republican Party to, to do something.
2: You know, it's interesting. There was a story over the weekend, and I don't have it in front of me, but the essence of it was that while we're obsessing over the southern border, uh, where about six terrorists supposedly have come in over the border, that 41 come in over the northern border, and whole <laughs> and whole swaths of the Canadian border are totally unpatrolled. And even though it's bigger than the southern border, they have far fewer agents, et cetera. So that was a little interesting you know, So, far. But you're
0: talking logic. One of the things is, is that he's really pandering to his base. So the, so his, so this will be a kind of pyrrhic victory, because if it, indeed he gets his border wall, it will be at a tremendous at a tremendous loss. Uh, by the way, her name
1: here. is Sister Norma Pimentel, P-I-M-E-N-T-E-L, and she's not just an activist. She's the executive director of Catholic Charities That's right. of the uh, Rio Grande Valley. You know, we only have three or four minutes left. Uh, can okay. you tell the story of the Groveland Four and uh, who have gotten— so I guess some it's, level of it's bittersweet justice from uh, the newly elected Republican Governor DeSantis in Florida. Tell us who they are for those. Yeah, who don't and know this so story. in in,
0: 19, in 1949, four boys. Were accused. We've heard this kind of narrative before. Before boys, and I need to say the names because of the, because of Durant. the pox on their family, Durant. the heavy burden that they've carried. But these four boys, Ernest Thomas, Samuel Shepard, Charles Greenley, and Walter Irvin, were accused of raping this white woman. So apparently, what happened in this town in Florida is that uh, one of the stories. There are different strands here. One one narrative strand is that their car broke down. Okay, and apparently these boys. Uh, beat up the driver, meaning the woman's husband, and raped her. Uh, what most people believe is this, that her husband uh, beat her be, Beat her. when they also did a, a gynecological study. There was no uh, even suggestion of, of rape, any signs of rape. But unfortunately, uh, um, the sheriff at that time ran one of the boys out that he went 200 miles chasing him. And shot him in and, the head. And shot him in the head. Uh, torch black homes so you know what this reminds us of Tulsa Oklahoma right uh rosewood we we've, we you know the narrative um to kill a blo- mockingbird cap- captures that yeah. kind of repeated uh story that we see here but now it is 2019 it's 50 years later um but it's a heavy burden it has destroyed families generations later actually 70, from this right. one that's right and by 70 the way the interesting
1: later. thing about this hearing we're ultimately to de- determine that uh, there would be, was it pardons, I guess, is the term of art in Florida, the uh, white teen who contended she was raped, Norma Padgett, and continues to contend, was actually at the hearing. uh, uh, And despite that fact, and this is, uh, I would, politicians, I'm actually pleased to some degree, I know it's late and coming, obviously it's very late and coming, but the fact that they were willing to do it there, particularly with her presence and saying i've been called a liar, but I am not, was pretty amazing but to no me. though
0: in some ways they, they her story holds up i mean her her story that that she's not lying because my understanding of it is that it's it's not that she lied. So this is this overall. This is why they're being. What not, is it then? It's it's that the boys did not receive a fair trial. So in many no, but ways,
1: but that's the that's the splitting of the baby that the governor is doing there. That that they. But said that's they my did point, though. I trial.
0: wanted I wanted a full throated so kind I. of acqu- acquittal. So in many ways, it, it keeps that narrative alive that she may have. We just the boys for whatever the reasons may be. You know, didn't get a full a full trial. So that that's the thing that bothers me. It still ha- hovers. Over the family, I think it's a good point.
2: Yeah, and also that the two of these guys that appealed their sentences, they were being driven back uh, to the uh, courthouse for their new trial, and the sheriff shot them both. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, killing yeah. one yeah. instantly. Yeah, and the other one, uh, you know, the sheriff claiming they, they were trying to escape, and the guy who played dead and survived said, "No, they weren't trying to escape." And he eventually died at forty one from his untreated gunshot wounds. I mean, right. it just makes you And sick. you
0: know, uh, uh, two things: um, James Baldwin's uh, movie go see because it carries that narrative. It's a criminal throughout. justice That's story, absolutely. And uh, and then there's a book. This was number number one book for t- one of the number one books for twenty eighteen is an American Marriage. Mm-hmm. It's a more contemporary version of this similar kind of story. A buppy, you know, couple uh, go down to New Orleans and. Uh, the the, the the guy in the narrative happens to go over to the uh, concession stand to go get some soda or whatever, and we find out that he's accused of rape. He didn't rape the woman, but given the laws, even in, in, in 2018, uh, is, is, uh, is incarcerated.
1: Irene, nice to
2: see you. Yeah, I miss my
0: buddy here. I back. know, he'll be, All right. he'll be back.
2: Irene is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston's voice for Detour's African-American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU's School of Theology. Sheena Emmett-Price joins us every week for All Revved Up. Up next, our TV man, Bob Thompson, joins us for the latest, the best and worst TV moments of the week. He is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie And Could a generation of great television, from the West Wing to the Wire, have ever come to be? Turning us all into TV connoisseurs along the way, if it were not, for this.
10: What the f*** is Paulie? Uh, he called an hour ago. I swear to God, he said he's on his way. What the f*** isn't he here now? Jesus, Tony. You don't think uh, Paulie jumped the gun? Shut up. God forbid. God forbid. Don't talk like that. Where's push? You get him on the phone, get him on the phone. All right. All right. I haven't seen him since uh, paulie took him to the Schwitz. Hey, fellas. What f- have you been? I've been calling you all f-
5: night long. I was at my gomas. I told Silvio I was coming.
10: You answer me like I'm Jesus Christ himself. And if you f- lie to me, make your mother die. I can't try the eyes. Oh my god, it gives me chills. The
1: Sopranos marks its 20th anniversary this week. Joining us online to talk about how it changed television is Bob Thompson. Bob's a professor and founding director of the Blair Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Hey
11: there, Bob. Hey, how are you guys doing? Excellent. Oh,
2: great. Boy, was it great to hear that scene from The Sopranos. So how did The Sopranos change TV, Bob Thompson?
11: Well, I think the big shows that uh, made the big changes that moved television into this artistic, literary, sophisticated uh, place that it is now was first way back in uh, 1981 with the appearance of Hill Street Blues, and then, of course, in January, what was it, 10th, uh, uh, 1999, when The Sopranos debuted. So it definitely it it kind of it, it is marked as the beginning of that big, what would become the explosion of cable quality, and then that would go on to uh, streaming high-quality shows as well. But we should be a little careful not to completely overstate uh, the importance of this show, as, as though we'd still be watching Mr. Ed, if The Sopranos <laughs> had uh, come along. Um, because already HBO had done uh, a show called Oz, the prison. Oh, drama. that's right. And that debuted July 12th of 1997, and all the things that uh, the peop- people talk about that The Sopranos uh, uh, innovated and pushed the medium along, Oz had pretty much done a lot of that stuff as well. The big difference, of course, was that The Sopranos was spectacularly successful. Uh, Oz didn't have nearly the uh, number of viewers, and that's what pushes certain types of programming uh, to be imitated and to have more like the made is if they're uh, really successful. So I don't mean to downplay the quality of The Sopranos, one of the greatest TV shows ever made, or its impact. Its impact was very significant, but it wasn't operating in a vacuum.
1: Okay, let me continue to overstate its importance, (laughs) if I may, just to get a taste. Here's a little more from it. While performing an errand for Tony at a bakery, Christopher takes his frustration out. On the clerk in this scene by shooting him in the foot for making him wait here it is
12: hey Gino can I get you
5: some um whoa whoa number 34 right here he was in line man he just went out to go get gas in his car oh so I could go out F- your sister come back Saturday I go to the front of the line
12: I said he could
5: hey poppin fresh I'm in no fucking mood today I'm next now get a fucking pastry box Gino what can I get you oh it's all right Dougie let him go first You don't make the rules here. All right, let me have uh, two new pollen loaves. You touch a single f***ing crust, you're going to wish you took that job at McDonald's. you. Okay, take a walk.
1: All right, poppin' fresh. I'll tell you, tonight (laughs) on television, by the way, I don't know if you know this, Marjorie, I have three locals... The guy who played Gigi, who uh, everybody read yeah, this infamously, died week, Jim. on the toilet. <laughs> Marianne Leone, who played Christopher's mother, and Frank Santarelli, we've had him on a local comic, yep. who played Georgie uh, the bartender at the Botic Bing. So I I am like oh, so sopranoed wow, up. That's it's a- just, you know, Bob, I don't know if we ever – what did you think of the ending?
11: I thought it was a perfect ending. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was incredibly frustrating. It's not the ending. Uh, well, we, we've talked before about how uh, Sex and the City was an ending that made everybody happy, but it betrayed what the show was all about. Mm-hmm. The Sopranos was an ending that made everybody upset, but uh, uh, it was the perfect ending. I mean, from the very first episode of The Sopranos, it was about, and Tony pretty much comes right out and says says this, he comes too late to this business, he doesn't get enough respect, he wanted to be Don Corleone, and in fact he's Al Bundy or Homer Simpson, and <laughs> in the end he doesn't get what he always wanted. He doesn't get to go out in a blaze of glory. He goes out listening to some Journey and eating onion rings. And I think it That's was great. absolutely the perfect ending for that
1: show. Yeah, as I think well, I told you, I didn't when I first saw it, but I have probably watched and I'm not exaggerating, maybe a hundred times in the intervening years and I agree with you, it is absolutely perfect. Well,
2: because it grew on you. I mean, and you thought, okay, does he continue on? Or do they all get shot that night? I mean, what does happen that you just don't know? And I like that ambivalence. It would seem perfect to me after you thought about it for a few days, right?
11: Right. And, and of course, in the end, this is all about art. The answer to your question is nothing happens. That's Mm -hmm. the end of the show. These people don't exist, and they cease to exist when the program uh, stops. So unless they do a movie, which everybody keeps talking about, uh, that question will remain ambivalent. So what's the best of the week there, Bob Thompson? I'm giving it to uh, our colleagues at PBS or your colleagues oh, at uh, uh, PBS. Oh, um, wonderful. In, in, what, three days last week, um, just one great interview after another. On Monday, uh, part of the Independent Lens series, My Country No More, mm-hmm. about uh, oil driv- drilling in North Dakota and how it affected this little town of, uh, farm town of trenton between 2011 and 2016 um tuesday a great documentary on the uss indianapolis uh, uh, which was torpedoed after delivering nuclear weapon stuff and uh uh, many of the people uh uh, were attacked by sharks it was one of i think the biggest casualties of any naval um sinking hold on hold on
2: hold on hold on i love that line from one of the uh survivors who what said? Remember well, that was a great scene in Jaws when Captain Quint, Robert Shaw, talks mm-hmm. about how he was out in Indianapolis and they were all in the water oh, and, the, and, the, that, sh- and the sharks were circling. And one of the real survivors yeah. says in that documentary that after two days in the water, you just didn't care anymore about the screams of your of your of the other yeah. men because you you've been in the water for so long. I just had to squeeze that in there. I'm sorry, Bob. Go ahead. Yeah, so
11: so Monday we get uh, rural North North Dakota oil drilling. Tuesday we get the U.S. Indianapolis. And Wednesday, it hasn't ended yet. Uh, David Attenborough, who I like just about anything uh, that he uh, does, um, uh, gives us uh, Attenborough and the Sea Dragon, which had a line in it that uh, I've repeated a hundred times over and over. Uh, uh, Attenborough says, it's extremely rare to find a new species of Ixthosaurus these days. And you know, oh, we he's can... totally right about that. <laughs>
2: We've got a little clip from from uh, this. Uh, here's uh, uh, th- from the Attenborough and the Sea Dragon. Here's Attenborough. Torset
5: was the very first place where they found a really complete skeleton of one of these creatures. Well, people thought it was some kind of monster. But what was it? They thought it was a kind of cross between a reptile and a fish. So they called it An ichthyosaur, a fish lizard, or sea dragon.
1: God. Did I tell ever tell either of you that a couple of years ago we were in London visiting my younger daughter, who was in school for a semester. My older daughter, who was then in her mid twenties, stood in line for four or five hours when Attenborough had a new book out, and as she's approaching the moment when he's going to sign her book, like he does every. She starts weeping. She is so excited <laughs> to shake his hand. Oh, that's It was great. one of the most moving, sweetest was that, things ever. Jurassic Park? No, because she, well, she's just a huge admirer of all of his, what is he, 90-something years old now? I think Bob he's
11: something? in his 90s, and he's been doing, uh, what, 60 years he's been doing yeah, this it's pretty uh, great. stuff, or close to it, if not 60. But Wednesday wasn't over. So we get Edinburgh and the Sea Dragon and right after that PBS starts its six part uh uh the direct or the uh, dictator's playbook. And uh, the first episode was on Kim Il-sung, and they're going to do one on Mussolini, Franco, Saddam Hussein, Noriega, and I forget, Idi Amin, I think, are the other five. That's great. So this is three days. Anybody who's saying that PBS is, you know, in the age of HBO and all the rest of it is no longer relevant, they are playing a lot of really, really fine material.
1: We're talking to Bob Thompson. So uh, what was the worst, even though I think we could probably guess as to what it might be?
11: Yeah, I'm sick and tired of talking about this, and I'm sure you guys are too. But I I have to say the... A rhetorical disaster that was the Democratic response to the Oval Office uh, uh, thing was I can't believe that was happening in 2018. If that would have been a, a you know a couple of uh, cotton and increased Mather back in 1640 maybe, but oh man, you know if you, we,
1: we, on the day after we have talked about it a lot, but I I haven't read much about it since except mockery. Has anybody done a behind the scenes thing as to which of their advisors? thought that the two of them standing next to each other staring into the camera like they did was a good communications idea, or no?
11: Well, I haven't seen anything, and I've looked, too, because the question is maybe that before, and they have gotten mockery up one side and down the other, but um, before you know, I joined in on that mockery, I was thinking, well, maybe this is all the opportunity we're given. Here's a podium, here's the camera, here's where you're going to do your response. That that may be the case, and I suppose then we have to look at this a little bit differently. But even there, the way those two stood there, and we know Nancy Pelosi can, you know, uh, she can be active. She can be, you know, she can move. Uh, uh, she can be rhetorically effective, as can Schumer. And it was almost as though the two, you know, when you see those hostage videos? And exactly. That's what That's what it looked like.
1: So, uh, Bob, we uh, the I think we discussed last week the uh, Kevin Hart uh, conundrum and the whole Ellen DeGeneres thing, and I assumed that that was a prelude to the Oscars and and Hart having a rapprochement. But apparently, the show is going ahead. Not that I really care, but it is a news story. <laughs> is going ahead with no host or no lead host or what are they doing
9: exactly?
11: Yeah, well Variety reported that they're uh, g- going to go-, go ahead now with no host with a you know a, a list of A-listers, which by the way wouldn't be the first time. We've had many times uh, not too many times with no host. The last time was 89 and then I think before that in 39 when it wasn't even on TV. But uh um, multiple hosts uh, have been done a lot in, in the early days. There were four, five, six hosts, so that's presumably what it's going to be. But now we're hearing that it may be uh, casts from the Avengers, and conveniently enough, where do the Oscars air? ABC. Who owns ABC? Disney. Who owns Marvel that owns the Avengers? Uh, uh, Disney as well. So it could be one great big commercial for. When does that movie come out? In April, I think. So uh, that looks like where we may be going, multiple hosts with uh, uh, people who played superheroes. Um, but who knows? But we're not going to have to wait too long. It, it, February 24th is the Oscars.
1: So does the host, I know uh, the, we talk about how they have declining ratings year after year after year. Does who the host is have an impact on how many people watch the show, or is it a function of how big a deal it was in the movies that year?
11: Well, ABC, or or, or whatever network is uh, airing it, certainly thinks that having a good uh, name-recognizable host is a promotion uh, value. I mean, they get stories about who's going to host it and all of that. Um, I've said many times that I think it has very little to do after the first 10 minutes with how the broadcast goes. The hosts have sometimes limited uh, roles uh, after the first thing they do, whether it's song and dance or whether it's a uh, more frequently these days uh, uh, stand-up routine. Um, but I, I frankly think that Oscar's ratings going down have less to do with who was hosted at any given year and more to do with a lot of other variables, um, some of which are self inflicted uh, and some of which are institutional. You know what
1: they Wait. should do? They should have Alexandria Ocasio Cortez host
11: if well, you they know, weren't you rating. D- I
2: was going to ask about you. Schumer and Pelosi? <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Do you have any idea what the demographics are? Because I don't know. None of my kids the or their probably, friends right? watch. The Oscars. I mean, it seems like it's an over 40 or over 50 kind of thing.
11: Yeah, well, all of broadcast television skews very, very old. Yeah. Older than I think most people uh, uh, even realize. I think a lot of the networks, if you average everything together, is well into the 50s as an average uh, uh, demographic. However, Yeah. What happened on the uh, Oscars the night before or even that night ends up showing up uh, in streaming venues and all the rest of it. So it gets seen. Certainly a lot of young people saw when they gave the Oscar to the wrong movie a couple of uh, uh, a couple of years ago. So that all depends. Uh, The the audience accrues over time. uh, for a couple of
1: days I think the average age actually for shows like sixty minutes is disinterred that's the average <laughs> give or take a couple of years we're talking to uh, Bob Thompson so
2: Bob Thompson, Megan Kelly, uh, whose stint on the Today show did not go well, but she's leaving with all her 69 million dollars in, intact from her contract. so I mean does she, if you have sixty nine thousand dollars maybe million, you just like, million. million sail into the sunset, or do you try to go back and do something else? I don't know I mean she could have a very nice life. Her husband's a novelist, raised the kids.
1: So could Tom Brady. I mean, people want to stay in the spotlight, don't they? I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, not everybody. I think
11: whatever brought meghan kelly or anybody else to those uh, jobs is is not comfort and uh, for that matter i don't think ultimately in the beginning money this was a woman who in two thousand fifteen said you know barbara walters did her thing oprah winfrey has now gone over to own why not me she mm-hmm. saw herself in the uh... progression of barbara walters to oprah winfrey uh... to Megan kelly And uh, she was only, what, halfway through her uh, $69 million contract, which means they gave her about $30 million that was uh, uh, left on that. She has a non-disparagement clause, so we're probably not uh, not going to get a lot of the details. But as of Friday, um, she didn't even have an agent, much less a job lined up. So I'm not sure exactly where she will end up. I don't think it'll be a major broadcast network, and I don't think it'll be one of the big three uh, cable channels, whether it will be one of these sub uh, uh, situations. I, I don't think she's going to be unhirable, but I don't think she's going to be on any of the big shows.
2: Well, there's a big problem with Megan Kelly. I mean, the fact that she thought she could somehow segue into being anything close to Oprah Winfrey, who's Ms. Compassion and Empathy, and you know, uh, it, it just... She, she is a terrible misreading of her own. What made her a star? You know what I mean.
11: I think that you're absolutely right. That that what she did, she did at Fox very well. It required a completely different skill set than Oprah Winfrey, or for that matter, even Barbara yeah. Walters had and i think uh she should have known that the people at nbc should have known that and by the way we did talk about this when when that was first announced that she was going to nbc that uh, uh, we didn't know exactly how this was going to end with regards to the halloween costumes but uh, i think all three of us agreed that this probably wasn't a very good match
1: so you don't think cnn is a likely i mean i've assumed all along that there's a cooling off period and then she gets a job at cnn no
11: I don't think so. If I were a CNN executive, my biggest worry would be I would be sending a message that the standards for what you say on the air are this high – for nbc and they're a little lower for us so we're going to pick because of the yeah.
1: racism stuff in particular yeah. Assume, yeah
11: and i mean let's face it that was there i guess there are gradations of offensiveness but uh uh i i don't know i, I if i were running cnn i certainly wouldn't
1: she's not even 50 her. years old i just looked it up by the way Well, so. not, not yeah, everybody, not silly, everybody gotta, has to
2: keep going forever jim
1: well but who's tell me uh, a person who was at the top of their game and had a fall. She didn't commit a crime. John it like she going to jail. He was
11: 70 years old or something when he quit. I don't think he, he was quit. 70 years old. I think he was. Yeah. In I any case. He was, yeah. How old was he? But Do you're we know, right. When he retired, Bob? boy, did he ever retire. Yeah, I
2: think not everybody has that. they got to go, keep going forever. Anyway, uh, we talked last week about this uh, surviving R. Kelly um, on television, which which detailed the, the gross sexual abuse and his supposed dungeon of these young girls, etc., etc., so Now... Uh, he's in trouble with the law, with a uh, prosecutor out in Chicago.
11: Right. uh, uh, Police have opened an investigation in Georgia. That happened uh, like 48 hours after the uh, documentary, the last episode of the documentary aired. Cook County judge has granted an emergency motion uh, for the Chicago building inspectors to uh, inspect uh, his uh, studio, which, of course, featured a lot in the documentary. I guess the the good news about this is that decades-old uh, story is finally getting some, uh, some action. The scary news is that it took a lifetime... Exactly documentary uh, to make it happen. I mean, how did Cosby finally have the dominoes begin to fall? It was a stand-up comedian, yeah. Hannibal Burris, who got that going. And now, um, Lifetime, you know, the network we make fun of for They Stole My Child made-for-TV movies and Christmas uh, uh, in the Hamptons movies and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And Lifetime does a documentary, and it was a very compelling and very disturbing, and I think a very good documentary, and then finally, things that people have been saying about R. Kelly for literally decades um, is starting to get some legal movement. That That's a little disturbing. You know, but I haven't seen it
1: yet. I was hoping to watch it this weekend. I just never got around to it, but I will. But while there's been a lot of talk about all the celebrities who knew and did nothing and are now trying to do a CYA kind of thing, does it address the issue about why? Uh, the criminal justice system overlooked what – I mean, even I knew about these things, and I'm not exactly an R. Kelly fan. Did it, is, is it talk about that at all or oh, yeah, no? Yeah, I mean, f-
11: what, Family Guy, South Park, uh, jokes have been being made about yeah. this for a, uh, for a long, long time. Um, what I think is – what happens in these documentaries is you get all of this testimony, and the camera is ruthless. You are right on the victims. And that is the that gets people to pay attention in a way that nothing else seems to uh, uh seems to do uh, the the uh, what was it the New York magazine cover with all of cosby 's uh, accusers uh, on it but it, but it is disturbing that it seems like the criminal justice system can 't operate without the lubrication of what a uh, you know a television show is able to bring by bringing us these um uh, uh, these accusers, and that's uh, again that that is uh, that's an issue. I, I don't think we need we, we should need lifetime to make this stuff exactly. happen. Exactly. We're
1: talking to Bob Thompson. So Bob, what are we uh, watching in this week ahead?
11: Well, this is not a recommendation, but it's what I'm going to be watching. Uh, HBO debuts on Saturday. It's movie Brexit colon the Uncivil War. Uh, Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch
10: starts,
11: yeah. right as the uh, uh, the leave campaign uh, director. And already this has gotten a lot of uh, complaints and controversy that the timing isn't right. We're still in the middle of this story. Is it going to glorify uh, some things that shouldn't be glorifying? Uh, So it's already a lot of people talking about it. That's HBO Saturday.
1: Here's a little piece of the trailer from uh, Brexit and the uncivil war. Here it is. This is an insurgence against
0: the establishment. We're going to build something. That will restack the odds in our favor.
3: What are your
11: expectations, realistically?
0: To create the biggest political upset since the fall of the Berlin Wall.
11: Now
1: the fight for Britain begins.
2: You are feeding a toxic culture of fear and hate. You can't close the box
1: once it's been opened. What's your edge? What have you found? There is a new politics in town. One that you... Cannot control. You know, it sounds great, and you know I'm a huge Benedict Cumberbatch fan, but here's my uh, mathematic equation is everything he does is one less thing, one less Sherlock that's on the air. And I'll tell you, I live for those Sherlock things. But you know,
2: so. I, I didn't, you know, you, is, what you were just saying about R. Kelly uh, is, is different obviously because it could result in criminal charges. But I think this is, could be an eye-opener for lots of people. I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I didn't know there was a possible criminal investigation pending about uh, cheating on the regular... Oh, they exceeded the, the the,
1: finan- the yeah. limits.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people didn't, didn't know these, these details, and it could be fascinating and then you have the weigh-in of Steve Bannon, used to be the president's right-hand man. Uh, he's a big a supporter of Brexit. You know, the big populist movement, cl- complaining it's a clown show and so forth. I, I think this could be, uh, uh, you know, if people watch it, kind of a big eye-opener.
11: Well, you are right that I think very few Americans know much about Brexit, and uh, when it comes to the uh, details, I would have to put myself in that category uh, as well. I think some of the complaints uh, that are being uh, lodged to get this, some of them based exclusively on that trailer that we just heard, is that is the way to educate a population about an important issue that is going down as we speak a fictional interpretation yeah. of it starring uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. And uh, that, I think, is also a good question.
2: Well, what's interesting about this, too, which which we'll see what happens when it comes out, but the, the guy that wrote it, has apparently done – has a history of this, did a thing about the House, about Parliament. Uh, and, Graham, is that his yeah, name? Yeah, uh, uh, James Graham. Mm-hmm. He wrote the script for this, uh, did a thing about the coalition, about political horse trading. He's so done all these fictional things about British politics, which is – including the rise of Rupert Murdoch and the tabloid son. And Rupert Murdoch, of course, who owns the Wall Street Journal and fo- – and, Right. He doesn't own Fox News anymore. Does he still own Fox News? I don't know. He tried to get – he 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 did own Fox News. He tried to get that big British broadcasting uh, company, but he couldn't. But he owns all these tabloids in Great Britain. So he's got a pretty, pretty impressive history of writing about British politics.
11: Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting film, uh, but I think it's going to continue to be controversial. That's why it's my what to watch. We'll be watching. Thanks so much, Bob. We'll talk to you next week.
2: Thank you very much, wait. Bob Thank Thompson. You. Uh, Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founding director of the Blair Center for TV and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of TV and Popular Culture at Newhouse School. You
6: hear what's playing
1: in the background?
2: Oh, God. The opening of The Sopranos. Didn't this get you revved up every time you heard it? Rupert Murdoch does still own Fox News, the by voice. the way. Anyway, uh, great to talk to Bob Thompson as always. Coming up, Guster is here performing live from the WGBH Fraser Performance album. Studio with their new album, Guster, live next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I am Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And we are broadcasting from our GBH Frasier Performance Studio with a special guest. That would be Guster, the alternative rock band. That got its start in Boston. We are joined by the lead singer and guitarist, Ryan Miller. Ryan, it's great to see you again. Hello. Hi, Ryan. Nice to see you guys. That was the oddest. Uh, can we hear him again one more time? Hello, Ryan. It's nice to see you. Well,
9: well, hello. well hello. Whatever. <laughs> I'm
13: trying
1: to do my NPR voice. Whatever. You're here. That's all that matters. Vocalist and guitarist, Adam Gardner. Let's see if you can do better. Can you hear me? Not hello? really. But no, nice really. to see you, Hi, too. You Drummer and percussionist, Brian Rosenworcel. Hi, Brian. Here I am on this microphone. Oh. I think that's very getting good. a little better. And multi instrumentalist, I love that. By the way, the relative new kid on the block, Luke Reynolds. It's good. great to see you, Luke. Hey, great to see you too. Hi. And their new album, by the way, which comes out this Friday, which is really exciting, and they're going to play from it in a couple of minutes, is called Look Alive. And we have a present for you. I we don't do. know where, where our coworker is. We do. We apparently well, do not have a present for well, you because well, we, we have no coworkers. Yes, Jim went
2: and bought you a present this for you. This is not a good,
1: done... This is not very professional, right off the bat. Right off no, the bat. No, it's back. a bad start. But can I tell you what the present was? Please the present, in honor of your, I, I, from what I understand, legendary performance many years ago at Twin Donuts down the street in Olsen, <laughs> was a dozen donuts, paid for by me, by the way, not to be reimbursed, a dozen donuts from Twin Donut, and I don't know where they are, but they're coming soon. But
2: Th- thank
13: you for the gift, quote unquote? Oh, sort of, yeah, yeah. yes. I got you a lot of stuff, too. But <laughs> <laughs> but I got there's, you a
2: car. There seems where to, to be some confusion about what exactly went on in the parking lot at Twin Donuts. It are we making the best too much? It we of ever stuff? played. <laughs> <laughs> Best gig you ever played in the parking lot of Twin Donuts. Okay, all right. How'd that um, come about, by the way? I mean, I'm trying s- to
13: think of the, of the least cool place to play, in a yeah. dumpster behind a Twin Donuts on yeah. ComF. No, How no, are you no, enjoying no. the donuts, by the way? How are we enjoying them? Yeah. Oh, they're delicious. The best <laughs> yeah. fake donuts I've ever had. Oh, there they are. Can you do me a oh, favor? look at that. I take it all
1: back. You can eat while you... They're upside down, the box, which <laughs> is not... <laughs> take them with you, wherever you go. They In are group. supposed okay. to be Too very kind. good
2: donuts. Supposed to be very good donuts.
1: Now, can you... You know, for those who don't know you as well as we do, both personally, sort of, and professionally, uh, this three of the four of you meant... On day one at Tufts, is that is that true? Pre day right? one, like day
13: negative, because we were in an orientation uh, situation. So school hadn't even really started, and that's when it all—that's how we met. And now look, it's twenty-six years later. Twenty-seven,
1: actually. Oh, I think really? whatever. <laughs> what, what drew the three of you? What, what was the Brian Adam Ryan connection? What drew you to each other? I had a ponytail. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> don't you wish you had one now? No, actually
13: actually no, I don't. I mean, I wish I had enough hair to put in a ponytail. I think ultimately what it kind of came down to is we were all in bands in high school. So hmm. it was the idea was I, was we wanted to be able to go and play music that wasn't like I didn't want to be I don't think any of us wanted to be in a cover continue to be in a cover band and we didn't know any of the same music anyway, so we started writing music right out of the gates.
1: Adam, what did you think of uh, Ryan the first time you saw him? I asked him if he sang, and he said no.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, bro. I was like, I really like harmonies. And he's like, no, I don't sing.
1: And Brian, what was your impression of these two guys, your first encounter?
12: I really wanted them to let me into their band, so I pretended I was good at the bongos, but really, I just had a pair on my shelf, and I didn't even know how to play them.
2: <laughs> yeah, bongos. I mean, that's... So you kind of segued into a more impressive uh, percussionist from the yeah, bongos.
12: Yeah, I'm really surprised they let me in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, as, as, my, uh, as the years um, tore on, I kind of grew the kit into a more elaborate percussion thing.
2: Okay. Okay. And Luke Reynolds, do you feel you do you feel sort of left out here? That we, no, not
12: no? at all. I'm They've checking out with donut I'm going to take. Okay. All right. <laughs> not they're that very they're, real. They're, they're very very Where'd good. Where'd you go
1: to college, Luke? I don't think we know that. I did the first half of school at Lamont School of Music in Denver, and oh. then the second half at Belmont School of Music in Nashville. Oh, you did? Yeah. He's so, the actual only real musician in this band. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys, by the way, I've heard a lot of this. Marjorie and I listened to a lot of your new album last night, and it's spectacular. It is spectacular. Yeah, it's great. Can you play now, and then we'll talk a little bit more yeah, in a couple play. Of seconds? What are you playing first?
13: We're going to play a song called Hard Times. Great. And this is kind of our NPR edition. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Like a gentle, a gentle warming, a gentle warming.
1: Here's Guster.
13: Enter a scene that defies description They say to open your mind and take it all inside One click at a time We move through fiction And send our sisters to the sacrifice Sinister systems Keep us satisfied These are
5: hard times I'm breathing in The oxygen I'm holding it
12: Through
9: hard times I'm breathing out In the ulcer sound Things come around
13: ten thousand miles of the new prescription So we open our mouths and take them all inside one pill at a time the pure is fiction and send our sisters to the sacrifice Sinister systems keep us satisfied. These are hard times. I'm breathing in in the oxygen. I'm holding it
5: through hard times. I'm breathing out in the ultrasound. Things come around on time
4: I'm holding in. These are in hard times. I'm
5: breathing out. In the ultrasound, things come around. These are hard times.
13: I'm breathing in. The oxygen. Take it all inside. I'm holding in. Take it all inside. In hard times.
2: Hard
1: Times from Look Alive from Gusto.
2: Okay, okay. I want to know, what was that about? What's that? Yeah, tell me what that was about. The song? Yeah.
13: That performance of the song? Or just this, the, like, what's the lyric about? Yeah. Um, like, I, I just, we were just talking before, and we're like, we're literally, like, this is a second second interview we've really done about the record, so uh-huh. I'm not into my canned anecdotes <laughs> part yet. Um, so I have to really think about the question. I mean... This song was, like, very unusual in the sense that a lot of... Lyrics are always the hardest thing for us, slash me, and some of these songs we've been working on for years, and lyrics take sometimes months and months to work on, and we wrote this song in the studio. So usually I'll sort of... uh, I'll write a lyric as a sort of rough draft, and then I'll kind of mess it up, and what's, this is NPR, uh, obfuscate, is that a word? Obfuscate, yes, Yes, that's right, like a
2: politician.
13: Yeah, so that's what I usually do, it's like I'll say something maybe plain spoken, and then I'll try and make it more metaphorical, so it's less, for whatever reason, I feel like it it kind of gives you somewhere to dig, and there really wasn't time for that in the studio, (laughs) Um, and also, you know, a lot of this record was written over the last couple years, and you know i'm a thinking uh, feeling individual who reads the news and feels some of this stuff very deeply so a lot of the themes on the record are sort of concerned with you know me and my children and our place in the world and what's kind of happening i mean the song is called hard times we're talking about you know how clicking through things is fictional and we talk about sending our sisters to the sacrifice i mean a lot of this stuff i'm kind of wearing it on my sleeve the song's called hard times i mean it's like i'm really just kind of laying it out there and it, it's a little scary for me to do that uh, but I think that's where we also is really fun to be, is in a really scary place.
1: You know, Ryan, you said you wrote this over a couple of years. Didn't I read somewhere that you uh, wrote this thing uh, in a car wash or something? Or over a car wash? Or <laughs> no, there was. Over no. a car dealership or some no. such
12: thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, in, in Maine. Uh, oh, you did? Thank <laughs> you, Brian, for bailing me out. I, like your, I, I like your research team. I did Yeah, yeah we, we did. did. We have a very good U. research team. Well, we, go ahead. We all live in different places. We so write yeah. songs, we kind of get together. At a car wash, there and in Portland, Maine, Adam hooked us up with this rehearsal space on top of a car dealership. <laughs> we we actually got three songs out of that spot. Oh, that's pretty good.
1: Are you aware of the fact that somebody just snuck in your band? Do you know that, or does that concern you or not? There's a guy yeah. over here. Just oh, over there, snuck yeah. in. I, I don't know
2: that guy. <laughs> yeah, with a saxophone. No, we know
13: that guy.
1: No, we're aware.
13: We're bringing it okay, all today. We're bringing our full okay. production to our unplugged performance here today.
2: You know what? I wondered if any of you guys can answer this, but we we, we talked the last time about how uh, your wives conceived of babies within four months of each other, all girls, I believe? Yes. And you told me before we started, they're, they're 11 now?
13: They're Yeah, they're going on 11. So now
2: that they're 11 like, really into music and, you know, all that you know, all that stuff and the phones and the whole deal, what do they think of uh, Guster? Are, they, are, you, well, are you guys cool really, or are you guys a i sure we all have
13: different answers for that. I mean, I live in Burlington, Vermont. Yeah. So it's a very different situation than Brian who, like goes to like he lives in Brooklyn and his kids go to school with like all celebrities so (laughs) he's his kids probably think about him differently than than we do I I always just say you know a few people will recognize me when we're out or and they've been on tour with us obviously and I think what I sort of what they're sort of it's like oh my dad's just a a little bit famous that's just kind of how it is (laughs) that's just how we kind of digest it in our family
2: so about you Adam is your kids think you're neat or or embarrassing
7: I think in another year it'll be embarrassing,
2: but
9: right now it's okay. <laughs> and I'm, we're keenly aware of that, okay. too. Like, How long are we going on yeah. tour for? This is it. This is yeah. the window where they like us.
2: Brian, I want to ask you about Brooklyn, because I suspect uh, they grow up a little faster in Brooklyn, huh? There's
12: so many celebrities. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. How is you know One of you guys is quoted uh, saying we never do the same thing again, uh, describing this uh, eighth studio album, of yours how is this different from what you've done before any of you ryan adam brian luke anybody how is it different
13: well you can can go i mean i think a lot of it is is that we try and get we try and become better songwriters and lyricists and performers uh every time out but a lot of the sonics are the really the things that i think changes from from record to record our last record was made with our friend Richard Swift, who has a very specific way of approaching making music. It's a lot of first takes. It was really not a fidelity issue. It was all vibe. And we made recorded 14 songs in three weeks. And that was like that. And it, it really, what it comes down to, and then this guy, Leo Abrahams, who we collaborated with, it couldn't be more... The opposite. He's incredibly fastidious, super molecular, down to the detail, would work on something for days and days. And so I think what a lot of it comes down to is our intention going into it, but also the collaborators that we choose. I mean, we've self-produced a record or two, but I think a lot of times our producers really, if we, when, it, when it's done right, our, the producers kind of get to shine through in a lot of ways. So- this
1: thing is formally re- released on Friday. Obviously, you're pretty happy with it. You didn't release it. Do you, Are you nervous about how... Anything new you do is received by your fans and the public, Adam.
9: We try not to be, I, I,
1: but are
7: you? I mean, I don't not, not particularly. I think at this stage, the, the, at least the folks that come to our concerts, they, they they expect something new every time we come out. I think they'd be disappointed if we kind of did the same records over and over. But
1: an- do you do you when you know that the reviews are going to come out? Do you, like, wait up for whatever yeah. paper? You really I, don't? I, I
13: totally, I mean, I do. I read everything that's, that's Ryan ever telling written, the truth it, there. written about our band. And it's, how do you take the... it? But, but what's the, what's cool about this, and I think you guys know this, because while well, we're probably not the same age, we're also at an age where you sort of care less and less about how things are consumed and more about what you've made. And, like, I, the older I get, the more I believe in what, I do, and sort of shutting out the noise, and, you know, I have amazing, we have amazing collaborators in each other, so we've, we have the checks and balances. It's not like anything's gotten past any of us, and we all know a lot of stuff, so, like, I think it, I don't think that all of this is going to go over super well, like, right out the out of the gate, and some might not, ultimately. I mean, that song is very serious and called hard times and in this next song i sing in an english accent you know what i mean and it's kind of and it's and it's a really strange record i think it's the most disparate and sort of you know it's a it's a hard thing to kind of pull together but we really like we know this stuff so we have spent so much time on this record there's i can stand behind every note of it
1: so if you sing in a british accent how'd you vote on brexit
13: <laughs> oh, I, I, I obviously love Brexit. Okay. It's <laughs> yeah,
2: I was going to say before you switch yeah, into Brexit that that's a very mature attitude that other people might embrace in their She's talking yes, about she, me, yeah, actually. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I am very. <laughs> She's she talking about me. So, can we hear this song? What are you playing?
13: Uh, it's called Overexcited.
2: Overexcited.
1: This is Guster.
13: I'm halfway home, at the pub, on the corner of the street I see kids from school, and I stare down at my feet, sports on TV They scream for victory A few blocks down, there's Dawn, she's got spinach on her teeth In between the front ones, just a little bitty leaf And I try to speak don't make me nervous And I get overexcited Can't do a damn thing about it My god, we're shoulder to shoulder Nice guy looking for a future lover The pet shop's closed, too bad Animals like me back We had a dog once We all just called a cat Was mum's idea She's got a great sense of humour Later tonight Some soup Then I'll probably send a text Hey it's Jim. Would you like to have the sex And if that's too weird Maybe just a hot chocolate You up.
1: excited from look alive from guster <laughs> you want to say that's kelly pratt or should i yeah, say it's sure, kelly, it. it kelly pratt that is kelly pratt that's kelly he was unbelievable yeah kelly nicely done what's with the british accent sorry I couldn't what's hear with it. the british accent
13: you know i couldn't really tell you although i i did an inter- i did an interview on the way down and someone said you know historically how much of yourself is in your lyrics and i think that i was like Oh, everything I talk about is basically me, some version of me. And then I was like, oh, except for Overexcited, I wasn't me, so I was playing a character. So I think to even, like, distance myself further, I was, like, just... And I don't know. And plus, we really like that song. We really like Madness, and we were really trying to be like Madness. And our producer was British, and he gave us permission to do it because all it takes is one British guy to tell you it's okay, <laughs> and he did, so we did. I, I don't, I, and it just sort of fit, because if I was just going, the pet shop's closed, too bad, I don't know. It just didn't feel like it has, it wouldn't feel comfortable for me. So no, it's just about sense. right. I I no, it does. I long. don't know. I don't really know. It's, it's a great question. I
2: don't know how to answer it. I yet. think spinach in your teeth is something that we can all relate to really right? Why know. is it always a spinach, by the way? You ever it's always thought got, about got that? spinach. It is spinach. Why spinach. is it romaine lettuce? I don't
13: I, I don't know, because they don't eat lettuce. Yeah, in I Britain. guess so.
2: It's very dangerous to, ask, Maybe they do. to eat don't a spinach kind of salad. Hey, you guys have got a contest going, which I thought was sort of neat. This is radio, so people can't see that your album cover has a picture of a woman with sort of an embroidered hat on her head. So tell us about the contest.
5: Well,
13: basically... I have I kind of ADD and I'm constantly like fiddling with my phone so before we went into the studio I didn't want to always be on my phone so I I really like embroidery so I started embroidering like when we were sitting in the studio I learned like like four stitches so I could just like that's on my shirt I have stuff everywhere I'm like everything just to get my hands busy so then I was on Instagram, like, looking how to do embroidery, and I found this artist, this woman, Nikki Verbitsky, who, who did that. And I was like, this is beautiful art. And when it all kind of felt like – and then when we called the album Look Alive and we saw that image, it all kind of tied together. And she did, a, she did our faces and stuff. It was just one of those sort of kismet moments. How
1: often do so, you guys – I mean, you live – everybody lives in a different place,
13: yes? Different state, yeah. Different
1: – how often do you see each other and rehearse and all that kind of stuff?
13: I mean, we're together. This is our job. This is kind of our main job. Yeah. So, like, we're touring. We're usually either touring or writing or recording. You know, I mean, we see each other at least every month. And sometimes, you know, like, we're leaving now. And we're going, uh, we, you know, my son was crying last night when I left. And he's like, uh, Why are you leaving uh, for months? It's like, <laughs> it's just one month,
2: You know what Your I mean? Kids still so, like, cry. But the contest, though, this is kind of a neat thing. The pre- if you order, I'm, I'm reading from this press release right here, if you pre-order Look Alive through the Guster website, you can get, and the reason I mentioned that artist, that this Nikki Verbisky, the Look Alive album artist, will immortalize one's fan portrait in full embroidery style. That's right? such a good idea. Wow. Yeah. Who's doing that? <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. doing that? Yeah, yeah you're That's doing awesome. that. Way to you're go, doing Andrew. that. And <laughs> also, one acoustic house show during the upcoming t- uh, 2019 tour live-streamed... On Guster's social media from oh, somebody's... I thought we that. Way <laughs> to go, did? Guster Manager. From living room, from somebody's living oh, room. Oh, I really
13: thought we said we weren't going to do that. Really? Well, you better take yep. it you off your well, press Well, I guess release. we are. We really love
2: doing those kind yeah, of things. Yeah, go to somebody's living room and do it, right? <laughs> yeah, this is totally sort of a big living room. I guess the acoustics are better.
1: So can you go back to the dorm room or whatever? I'm sorry I'm obsessed with the Tufts thing from 27 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> How would they feel about you? How would the Adams and Ryans and Bryans of 1991... Feel about the three of you plus Luke and an occasional Kelly in 2018. You mean 2019, how kids
13: interface with Guster? Or well, how did kids those
1: college kids? How would those three college oh, kids us? feel about like, you as you today? I yeah. mean, we
13: listened to terrible music when we met each other, so I don't know. I guess it depends how my self worth is
1: feeling today. We would be pretty confused
4: by what we're doing right now. <laughs> but was this
1: a, was this intent? I'm sorry, Brian why? I
12: just don't think there's any part of me that's like ah, I should have been a dentist, and, and, <laughs> no, and, and no. dentists are awesome, and dentistry I'm sure is great. important. But I feel like a kind of unexpected, like, rock and roll career is something I'll be grateful for.
2: Well, also, a lot of your fans have, have basically grown up with you guys. I mean, they followed yeah. you at Tufts, and they followed you right on through.
13: We made, like grown-ass women who are like, oh, I was listening to you when I was nine. You know what I mean? And Because it's, you know, it's 27 years, and, and some people have been listening to us, like, for, you know, for more than half their lives. But isn't that great? The isn't bulk it, of their Doesn't life. It feel it's, great? Listen, I did a lot of this, and I'm not trying to shut you down, but, I like, I did a lot of this navel-gazing thing when the, when the 25 came around, uh-huh. and and ultimately what I came out was just so incredibly humbled by the thing. But also, like... We work really hard to be better at what we do every time, and we work really hard to to keep it interesting for ourselves and our fans. And I think there's and and we keep each other in check on a lot of levels. And so there's I like I'm humbled, but I'm also proud. I don't think it's like and we're not famous, you know. Like 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 my kid says, like you're a little bit famous, but I get to be a full time musician. I get to come run through this like whole press gauntlet for a week and talk to really smart and interesting people who have smart and interesting things to say about our band. So we're humbled, but we also feel like we're kind of, it's a cool, we're like in a cool weird band and I, like, I can't wait, this kind of goes back, like I can't wait for people to hear the record. It's so unusual for us and I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud to play it for my friends and it's, it's just well, totally out of, out of a left field. We are really
2: glad that nobody chose to become a dentist because uh, now they can hear your latest album, Look Alive, which comes out this Friday. You want to learn more about it, go to Guster.com. We've been joined by lead singer and guitarist Ryan Miller, vocalist and guitarist Adam Gardner, drummer and percussionist Brian Rosenworst I hope mm, I got that right. You did, I think. And the she multi-instrumentalist did. Luke Reynolds, as well as Kelly Pratt uh, on the saxophone and the trumpet. We want to thank all our engineers here at WGBH went above and beyond for Guster's performance. Miles Smith, John the Claude Parker, Antonio Oliart, Margaret Heffernan, Glenn Heath, and our crew. Uh, you guys are going to play us out? I think.
1: By the way, the donuts are great. The donuts are great. I don't mean to belabor it because it's only great. nine bucks, That's but right. it was. They are on us, and they are really great. So what are you playing us out with? Ron, are you going to tell us? Well, By the way, we can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming here. We love you. Yeah, we love it. You guys are great. This the is audience so pro. I'm it. playing really like a, an,
13: a piano that's more expensive than my house, so <laughs> that's cool.
1: Um, when Marjorie and I got a tour of this building, when where they were attempting to convince us to come here, and we were ready to come attempting regardless, to they brought us to this performance center first, and you know what they told us? Don't touch the piano. <laughs> Honest to God, that's true. But go
13: ahead. Um, so we kind of came in. We were going to play two new songs, but also, same as our live set, we don't want to just, like, like, throw our new music down people's throats. So mm-hmm. uh, this, is a, this is an older song, and we didn't really know what we were going to play until about 45 minutes ago. Um, and I don't think we really – we don't ever play this song live. I think this one is us really reacting to playing a very expensive piano. Um, what and is this it? Is a, this is a song uh, off our last record called Farewell. I think, Yeah. Mm. All right. Was mm. Did you have any more questions or? Do no, no. I'm serious. I
1: didn't. <laughs> no, mean... we're thrilled to hear you play. Okay. Yeah. Well,
13: hey, if we don't get a chance, we're not saying goodbyes yet. We may. We may not. Okay. If we don't, thank you.
1: It's oh, really cool you. to be able
13: to come in, like I said, and like have a nice conversation with people that care and listen to our band and don't just want to talk about when we were at Tufts. Oh. Oops. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm just kidding. We this is awesome. Guys. Thank you guys so much. Thank, thank you. you very much. All right, Gus, you're ready. Guster. Did you guys figure out why that? Analysis? No. Okay. Great. Who you talking to? I wish that will never come true. You tried to cheat gravity, but what can you do? True. You tried to cheat gravity. What can you do? T-